irate pole dancer, not happy with her tip, sets off Armageddon. Keep spitballing that, Maya. I love where your head's at. Welcome to episode 139 of GBW Podcast. My name is Chris. With me, with double middle fingers in the air, on Skype, is Josh. How's it going? Hello. How's it going, Good, Birdie? Um, so, <laughs> Birdie, because you double flipped me. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, so, before we started, Josh told me that he doesn't like the number 139. So oh, I don't. I, I want you to tell everyone why. <laughs> well, because I have a serious aversion to the number three. So yeah. 139 has a three in the center and then a three times three at the end. So anything three or divisible by three, I don't like. Uh, so you hated episode 39. I hated 133. You hated six. Yeah. What are you going to do? Your head's going to explode when we get to 666 or 333, isn't it? 333 will be really bad, yeah. <laughs> We'll have to pick an easy topic for that one because you'll be so you'll be like staring off into corners and stuff. I know, I know, shivering, shivering. fetal position, crying, the fetal position. All you're gonna hear is is sobbing coming from one microphone. Whimpering, yeah, I know. He'll be like, he'll be like, this is Josh. <laughs> Antonio Margheriti, Polish Stekia, oh, 1974. Oh, come on. <laughs> All right. Hey, come let's... on, I got some new shit on this one. Okay, well, let's begin with the movie that we both watched. Yeah, okay. Because uh, I took it, I'd be taking advantage of uh, Warner Archive sales lately, and uh, I had gotten this because of I was inspired after watching The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, and you had it. So you said, let's yeah. watch it. So we were like, okay. And what movie is that, Josh? It's the 1975 TV movie called Sweet Hostage. And it stars Linda Blair and Martin Sheen. Now, yes. be- before we get into it, we'll just say that the reason I was, in- was inspired to buy this is because in Little Girl That Lives Down the Lane, he's a creepy guy who's lusting after like 14, 13, 14 year old Jodie Foster. Yeah. In this movie, he's a escaped mental patient who is lusting after 16-year-old Linda Blair. And he's like, I think he's supposed to be like 26 or something like that. So not quite as creepy, but still sort of creepy. And 35 in real life. And uh, it sounds like Linda Blair kind of fell for him a little during this too. Oh, man. Um, while she was dating 26-year-old Rick Springfield. Hmm. So, um, yeah, she, she obviously had a thing for older men. <laughs> I'm very amused that you brought up Rick Springfield because he'll be coming up later in one of my other movies. So prepare, oh, interesting. Gird by loins, everybody. Gird Whoa, by he was, loins. He wasn't in a lot of movies. Well, you'll you'll find out. But um, so basically, Josh and I both really love TV movies, especially yep. TV movies produced in the 1970s, particularly. Right. Um, what blew my mind is that. When this opened on the screen, there was a there was a title that said Brute Pictures, B R U T, a a Fabergé company, as in the fucking cologne. Yeah. So 
I did not have any idea that Fabergé produced films. Oh, me neither. And I had no, and it's the exact same symbol that they use on their cologne bottles. I know, and I, it reminded me of my teen years when all yeah. the ladies were falling all over me because I was wearing it. Oh, yeah? You were like, no, hey, I, ladies, look at my brute. <laughs> Come get me. That's right. <laughs> you're like you're like cruising the mall. You're like in the arcade, and this girl's like, "Is that brute?" <laughs> totally, <laughs> totally there. So it's badly. It's yeah, it gets them going. <laughs> so this also <laughs> continues Linda Blair's string of TV movies after The Exorcist. In between The Exorcist and Exorcist Two, she did uh, this. She did Born Innocent, which I've talked about on a past episode, and she also did uh, Sarah T portrait of a teenage alcoholic which i yep. have not to watch yet but uh we'll probably get to soon because mm-hmm. of my tv movie obsession but um let's talk a bit about the plot <laughs> what little <laughs> plot there is um so this opens with martin sheen's character escaping from a mental ward by like sneaking in the laundry cart and everything while the the black exploitation sounding score is going on in the background and i'm like this is this is pretty rad like this is this is a pretty rad opening his name's leonard hatch he's he's actually i think he's 35 in the movie is what they say so oh is he okay yeah i think he's playing his age so he escapes from a mental ward at the same time we're introduced to country girl doris may played by linda blair and her hold parents. on hold on hold on am i missing before something? all this happens yeah well, how can you miss the cheesy folk song that opens the movie during oh, the Oh, yes. 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 Strangers on a Carousel. I think well, that was that open in the opening No, it credits? was after. It's after they introduced Oh, the no. It was character. when they were driving, and yeah, that's when yeah. he picked her up. Okay, I, that's, okay. that's on my notes, and it's coming. Trust <laughs> me. Because lately, there's been so many fucking movies I've been watching with these rad fucking songs that explain the movie plot in some way or another just like wilderness family just like this movie just like two other movies i'm talking about tonight that have songs that relate to the film um so doris may country girl parents are all bitchy um the dad played by burt remsen the great burt remsen who is also going to probably show up again in this episode in one of my other movies he was in uh he was the grandpa in 1986's terror vision which is where I mostly remember him from. He's calling saying, don't be a tramp. You know, you're going to be a tramp dressed like that and all that stuff. And he's mad that she knows science because he wants <laughs> like she, she literally says something about science, like something like some basic chemistry. And he, she's like, he's like, you don't need to know that stuff. And I'm like, oh, OK, it's, it's that kind of a town. Um, so then what's my next note? Rad Strangers on a Carousel song. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about Strangers on a Carousel. <laughs> well, it was like a total spoiler alert song. Like it, it explained everything that was going to happen before it happened. I know. It's like, <laughs> it's just like, you're younger and I'm older. And, but we saw each other and it was like Strangers on a Carousel. <laughs> I just I, I I was just laughing my ass off, uh, 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 and then Sheen's characters he he comes to town he tries to unsuccessfully rob the convenience store and takes her hostage, yeah. um, takes her out into the, his cabin this cabin way off in the mountains that he calls Xanadu, which um, 
is because the book I think the book is called Welcome to Xanadu. It's based on some novel called I think it's called Welcome to Xanadu. So that's where it gets that from. That's right. But, but it, written but by every time. Nathaniel Benchley, who is uh, Peter Benchley's father. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Did not know that. So <laughs> there you go. So his son's writing about sharks eating the fuck out of people, and his dad's writing about being a pedophile, <laughs> which makes me wonder what happened to Peter when he was a youngster. Right. So maybe, maybe in Jaws, the shark is a symbolism of his father trying to sneak into his room in the middle of the night. Oh, God, man. <laughs> <laughs> who, 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 who knows? Um, so anyway, so he takes her out to Xanadu. Uh, he gets to do multiple personalities. Like he has this character that's like a, I think he's supposed to be like a French servant or something yeah, my, like my that. Favorite, my favorite is when crazy people are doing multiple personalities. <laughs> well, we know. been evidenced on the show many times. Well, you multiple and multiple times. Multiple, <laughs> multiple personalities and, and drag. So yeah, he at does least she, British, he does French. Yeah. yeah. So he gets to do these personalities. He gets to wax ecstatic as it is, like about poetry and plays and intelligent stuff while... Linda Blair does a John Wayne impression. Yeah, so that, yeah, that was pretty good. And when Linda Blair is just like, "I'm a dumb country girl. I don't know where anything," she basically says that at one point how dumb she is. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, "I don't think you're dumb." Um, and then like within a day, they're suddenly playing house. <laughs> like, she's ordering stuff for him to get at the store. She's cleaning the cabin, and you know, she's cooking him meals, and and I'm like. Chick, you just got fucking kidnapped. Yeah. Should she be a little bit scared? Well, and, be... he, and he has like occasional bouts of rage as well. Yeah. But she never seemed scared once. No. That she was kidnapped. And then there's the uh, the recorder solo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty rad. <laughs> Where there's they're in front of a nice romantic campfire or, or not campfire like fireplace. And Sheen breaks out breaks out the recorder. You know those things we hated playing in grade school, and busts out a solo, which leads to dancing. And well, I have I, I gotta admit the the combination of wearing brute with the recorder is deadly. Oh yeah, did it? <laughs> Do you have oh, stories? Yeah. Oh, ladies, watch out! <laughs> <laughs> you see fucking you see Josh. He's got the brute on. He's in the middle of music class. He gets out his recorder. Because Mary had a little lambs, all he really knew how to play on the fucking recorder anyway, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so then, you know, it's just like this weird Stockholm syndrome slash creepy younger girl, older man love story where the three day time frame of the entire movie was totally like that's like I thought the movie was super interesting. Because it's a 70s TV movie and it's like kind of a subject matter that wouldn't be made into a TV movie these days. But I'm like, they were so enamored with each other after three days that I wasn't buying it as much as I wanted to. Like if they would have spread it over a week or two and let that Stockholm Syndrome stuff like kind of melt in, I would have been a a lot more like forgiving of some of the stuff that happens in this, I think. But uh I was having a good time watching Sheen flipping his hair as much as possible. 
and I was having a fun time when he admitted that he watched her bathe. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> I watched you bathe. I hope you're not offended. Well, because it wasn't sexual up to that point, and then all no. of a sudden it turned into that. And I actually wasn't minding it before that, but then I'm like, yeah. that was a weird decision. And apparently the book doesn't go there either. Um, but I, I did not find it interesting. I was just kind of bored. Like, yeah. I wish there was more escape attempts or more like, um, th- there just didn't seem to be any like suspense. Like, I never really was worried about him getting caught even. Like, I, there was a couple times where they tried that, but it, I felt like it didn't really work. Like, it didn't really, I never really felt like he was really in danger. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I just thought it was kind of dull. I was expecting a lot more, especially with the title called Sweet Hostage with Linda Blair in it. I just thought it was going to be a little more sleazy, which it was in a way, but it, it also seems like it was a bit of a uh, kind of a, a positive memory for a lot of people, this movie, when they saw it when they were young. And, and um, yeah. That's a creepy it, positive memory. <laughs> it is. It is. And I, I just did. Yeah, you're right. I just didn't buy into the whole thing. I was just yeah. kind of like this kind of dumb and the way he just kept lashing out like i was like i didn't even find him that sympathetic just because he did keep getting angry i know he had was mentally ill and stuff but i don't know i was just struggling with the whole point like (laughs) i guess i just wanted more exploitation in my ex in my uh 70s tv movie yeah like 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 i i did find it interesting that it was made um i agree with you that the story was fairly slower paced for what it was but I thought the performances were pretty good. Like I thought Sheen was okay. I know I know you don't like multiple personality stuff, but I was like, yeah, he's going for it. Let him have it. Yeah. And and, and, and I thought Blair wasn't bad. Like I mean, she's never been the greatest of actresses. Let's be honest here. But I I thought she was pretty good. And and I thought that uh, it was pretty well directed. Like I thought Lee Phillips, who made this, he's a, like a TV veteran. I thought he tried to liven it up a little bit by like doing like different camera angles here and there. Like there's a scene where he's driving his Jeep like rapidly back to the cabin and they flip the camera sideways so that the water's kind of splashing at the camera. And I'm like, okay, he's trying to at least make it a little bit more interesting because the story is kind of glacial in a way. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and you're right. Like you're totally right about the whole thing about how, how it changed its tone to be this, this creep movie at the end. Cause like, I was sitting there going, oh, this might not go there. It might not go there. And then the last 10 minutes show up. I'm like, fuck, it went there. And I was hoping it would. And if it, it didn't go there, it would have been more effective, I feel yeah. like. Because yeah. it did creep, make him creepy all of a sudden. It wasn't. It actually didn't play in a way that was creepy. But just you knowing what was going on is creepy in itself, yeah. right? Yeah. And had that not happened, had it just been this kind of innocent friendship, I think it would have packed more of a punch. Yeah. Then it did. And then it was, yeah, a very, very sudden ending. So. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Like, I I was like, you know, in your brain, you're like, this is creepy. But what yeah. they're showing on screen, you're just like, yeah, it's just this weird relationship. Yeah. But then when they bring in all that stuff at the end, you're like, okay, now you're fucking creepy. And now you've kind of erased all the buildup you had of them having this, like, kind of romance going on. Even though it was a wrong-headed romance, they still had staged it like it was a romance. And then the end comes along, and you're like, okay, you've kind of ruined what you were building to. And it was super abrupt. You're right. Yeah. Like, super abrupt. But uh, I didn't 
I thought it was all right. Like, I yeah. don't think I, I don't think I'm gonna rush to watch it again. But I thought it was all right. Yeah, like I, I don't know if I'll get rid of it. Like, I didn't hate it that much, but I, I, I guess I was just a little. I, I guess I had higher expectations. <laughs> As we're talking about how it shouldn't have been sleazy, I kind of wanted it to be more sleazy. <laughs> well, no, but I think the main, I think the main thing that makes this not on a level that I wanted it was the fact that she was never acted like she was in danger. Yeah. Like she had been there for six hours or under a day and she was already accepting everything that was going on. Yeah. And he was like slapping her around a bit too. Like I wouldn't mind, I would have liked like a good chase. Like even, even when she, there is a sort of a very minor escape attempt near the beginning but even that, it was just like he. There was no chase. Like he was just there, and it was over. And um, there was another sequence where it looked like you know she was going to try and escape again, and yeah. it just kind of fizzled away very quickly. And I don't know. I mean, I I kind of get that she you know she was a hostage of her own situation with her family and was trying to get away from that, and he was her savior and he was her Xanadu or whatever. Yeah. I get it, but like at the same time, it probably wasn't the most positive situation for her to be in as well. No. And uh, it was kind of evident a few times. Like it wasn't like he was a, a sweet guy. He was confused and I think innocent deep down. But he also had a you know a violent temper. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was just I don't know. It's just I don't know. There was a few sequences I liked. Like I did. There was a sequence where she does some poetry, um, Linda Blair. That I thought was a pretty good scene. Um, yeah, I, I, it had its moments. And, you know, I, I do like both actors, so it was nice watching them together. I just wish there was a little more to it. Even the kindly First Nations man who's in town, I didn't really understand what he was trying to do. Like, I was, it was kind of setting him up. Like, I was hoping he was going to be the one that was going to unravel everything. But even that didn't really happen. Like... And it was it almost looked like that's what was going to happen because there was a, a weird scene with the with that guy um, looking in the truck and stuff. And I thought yeah. he was going to solve the mystery and he didn't. It was just kind of uh, I don't even know why he was there. So it was just I don't know. It could have been a lot better. Um, this director did direct one of my favorite childhood movies called On the Right Track with Gary Coleman. Have you seen that one? Yeah. I used, when I was I a used kid. to watch the shit out of that movie. I loved that movie. That's so the I one where yeah, uh, it's not the one where he bet on the horses, right? Yeah, and he lives in the train station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I like that movie quite a bit. So um, I don't know. I, I it was it was fine. Like it wasn't terrible, but it was it was kind of like it was pretty. It was mediocre, like a, a mild recommend for me. But yeah. uh, um, and if you can get it for ten bucks on Warner Archive, why not? Yeah. <laughs> if you like these guys, like I like Linda, I like anything Linda Blair's in, I'll pretty much go for. <laughs> but yeah. I don't know if I'll be going back to this like I would Hell Knight. Yeah, like 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 the same with me. Like a very mild recommend to like if if you can grab it for cheap, which we both did, then yeah. yeah. And you like and you like the actors, and sure. Um, but just to, on my final note, just going back to when you were talking about the Native American character and how they were kind of building it like he was going to figure something out, they did the same thing when he went to order curtains. Right. And they never built on that, and that was disappointing as well. Mm-hmm. So, like, it, it just seemed like 
they weren't sure if they wanted to make it into a thriller, if they wanted it to be this weird romance movie, and and they tried to mush them all together, but in the last ten minutes, and I kind of wish they didn't. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, that's a uh, sweet hostage from 1975. All right, thanks, sweet hostage. Um, okay. Well, I've got so many things here, I don't even know where to begin. Um, okay. Well, let's begin here. Uh. Went to the Dollarama pile. <laughs> oh, oh. Because <laughs> um, at the rate I've been buying shit lately, I have to go to the Dollarama pile to start <laughs> whittling away this stuff. Um, so this is one, one of those covers where I just knew, like, it was just one of those covers where I'm just like, I don't want, I don't even want this in my house anymore, so I better get rid of it. And then I was like, <laughs> why, did I even, why did I even pick this up? Like, I know, I just know from this cover and the cover is Derek Mears, like, staring out at you with an evil look on his face. Derek Mears, of course, played Jason in uh, the Friday the 13th remake. And I he's think bald, I know what this is. Yeah, this is a movie called Compound Fracture. I have this, too. <laughs> <laughs> of course you did, because it was 250. Exactly. Um, <laughs> okay, from 2014, directed by Anthony J. Rickert Epstein. Um hasn't really done much he's been a dp on a bunch of low budget stuff um but nothing really of note um this was um written and produced and starring tyler main and his wife uh renee uh, gearlings uh tyler main of course played michael myers in both the rob zombie Har- halloween movies and it also stars um muse watson um who, of course, played Ben Willis in uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer and the sequel. Um, so this is, um, you know, it's promoted as like this, you know, meeting of these horror heavyweights, which <coughs> I guess you could say they were horror heavyweights, but in my opinion, they're not really horror heavyweights. Like, they're no. not, like, I'm sorry, Tyler Maine. Like, I do like Tyler Maine. I don't think he's terrible, but he's not Michael Myers, <laughs> like, no. in my brain, right? Derek Mears is not Jason. That's Kane nope. Hodder. And Muse Watson, yeah, I mean, I think I think Muse Watson's a fine actor, but I I personally don't think of the uh, of Ben Willis as like a horror icon. I no. some people might, but I don't. So for me, it was these kind of horror lightweights. <laughs> um, okay, so the story is um, Tyler Maine plays Michael. He's going to this. He's going to visit his father. Um, with his and he's with his fiance uh, Juliet, played by his real wife Renee Gearlings, and they have this teen uh, with them who's his uh, nephew, um, and they're taking care of the nephew, and he's like this kind of goth, gothy, sort of wannabe goth nephew. So off they go. They get to the place. Muse um, Watson plays the uncle, but he's um, it's kind of like a compound, and he's obviously a bit off his rocker. He's got all these like kind of. Um, you know, symbols and things set up to, like, ward off evil spirits. So you can tell, like, he's obviously a recluse who's scared about something. Um, so something's off right away. But they get there. They start walking around. You you know, as the story progresses, it's revealed that um, there was um, a tragedy in the family. You know, this is a fucking story. We've heard this all a million times. <laughs> there was a tragedy in the family. And... Um, and as it turns out, uh, Derek Mears' character, William, ended up, you know, killed uh, Tyler Maine's sister. And um, 
and is now basically haunting the family at this compound. Um, also, there is Leslie Easterbrook um, from the Police Academy movies um, playing um, Garrett Lundy's Watson's uh, wife, or uh, girlfriend, I guess you would say. So they're all there, um, and uh, basically Derek Muir shows up, and some supernatural stuff starts happening, and it's basically them in the house trying to, like, protect themselves from Derek Muir as well. Uh, Derek Muir's ghost while um, trying to unravel this family mystery. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen all this stuff. I don't really enjoy these kind of movies. I still am questioning why I bought this in the first place. But you know what? It actually wasn't bad. I thought Tyler Maine was a pretty good leading guy. Um, which I wasn't expecting, but I thought he carried the film quite well. Um, I did like his uh, wife or fiance, Renee Gearlings, quite a bit. Um, um, she was fine. Muse um, Watson, as I said, is always good. Derek Mears just kind of rubs me the wrong way. I think he's, I, I'm sure he's a really nice guy in real life, but he's just one of those actors that just shows up and I just, it's always kind of like one note. Um, I've never seen him do anything else other than look threatening, and, you know, that's unfortunate for him, but here we are again doing the same thing. Uh, we also get some cameos from, like, Daniel Roebuck and Todd Farmer show up briefly. Um, there's a few good gore moments. Um, um, but, yeah, this is really nothing new, and then it kind of gets a bit hard to follow at the end as they're trying to get too clever. Um, but overall, I, I it wasn't... I was engaged. It wasn't a complete waste of time. Um, but again, I, I, you know, probably give this like a two out of five kind of thing. Like it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't really good. And I don't think I'd tell anyone to go out of their way to see it. Um, now, this is a case, too, of where, <laughs> man, sometimes people should just just should not do commentary tracks. And uh, <laughs> I don't know these people at all. I mean, it was it's the commentary track was Tyler Maine and his wife, Renee, Renee Gearlings. And man, she just comes across as like a total ego. And it was really off putting because I really liked her. Well, I liked her in the movie. But um, just, you know, how she wrote the movie and just kept talking about how she wrote the movie. Like, she'd say things like, oh, I don't know why that happened. Oh, oh, or she'd be say something like, well, I da-da-da-da-da. Oh, well, I know why that happened because I wrote it. You know, oh, just God. kind of like comments like that. And I was just, and then they were like bickering quite a bit during. And I was like, oh, man, she just sounds awful. So, um, yeah, I was kind of bummed out that I actually listened to that, but. Anyway, I don't, I don't have a lot more to say about this. Uh, it was okay. I mean, if you're a fan of any of these actors, maybe you'll like this a lot more than I did. I'm just not a huge fan of any of them. I'd say if you're a big Rob Zombie Halloween fan and you want to see Tyler Maine carry a, a role by himself, check it out. He, he does a really good job. But uh, again, I've, I've talked about these kind of stories too, these kind of ghost stories set in one house, and they're just not really my thing. Um, I just, I, I thought it was... You know, I, a lot of times at Dollarama, I'm just picking things up and I'm looking at the cover and I'm not really reading the back and just like, okay, 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 it's two bucks, it's two bucks. You're the same way. Yeah. And uh, this is one of those times where I kind of was like, oh, I probably should have read the back because I probably would have put it with put this one back. But yeah, that's okay. That's kind of like that. Um, speaking of Dollarama ones and Tyler Maine, I got one at Dollarama too that was called Devil May Call. Oh, that was, was not good. Yeah, where he was like the killer in that, and it's like, yeah, these guys—they're just—they're just there. Like, really, I mean, I don't mean to be a jerk about it, but but they're just there. Like, Kane Hodder at least had person more personality and stuff. Like, whereas 
whereas I feel whereas I feel Maine and uh, and the other guy are just like hulking figures. You know? Yeah. So that that's kind of a bummer. And the good well, the good thing about that is it does at least for Maine, it takes away from that. Like it actually has him acting, which oh, okay. I think was a good thing. He's he was pretty good. Okay. But but mirrors is doing the same old thing, right? I, I don't need this stuff in my life, but uh, but you know, but I'm sure there's fans of the Rob Zombie Halloween movies that really love those, and that's probably their favorite Halloween movie. So for those guys, knock yourself out. You'll probably really enjoy this. I'm I'm biting. I'm trying my hardest not to insult. I know, those but people. there's probably some people out there. I know like there that, is. Right? Yeah, but they've always said. There's always said. Even the worst movie, there's someone out there who loves it. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, yeah. So yeah, I I won't rush to watch my copy. No, no. <laughs> okay, so. Let's talk about a movie that, you know, I, you know how it, there's there's a period of time when when big studio movies come out and they're supposed to be like kind of like a big deal or or whatever and then they end up f- like totally bombing and you know everyone forgets about them. So yeah. this is a movie that's based on a much beloved novel series written by Gene M. All. Um, and it's a Goober Peters production of all things. And Goober Peters are the guys who are mostly known for like ridiculous action movies and stuff like that. I think they're responsible for Top Gun, if I if I'm correct on that. Um, this is a movie called The Clan of the Cave Bear from 1986. Oh, uh, that. That's. It's uh yes yes <laughs> he did the hand he did a hand movement to me that. Uh, <laughs> it has to do with something very unpleasant that happens in the movie numerous times. Um, so anyway, this is uh, the reason. The reason I watch this is my girlfriend is a huge fan of the novel series. Like it's probably her favorite series of novels in history for her. So she's oh, like, wow. and and I came across this at like one of these thrift stores for two bucks. She saw it and she's like, maybe we should watch this while we're on holidays. She's like, I'm sure it's not going to be very good, but let's let's check it out. So I'm like, fine, it's two bucks. Let's check it out. So start it up. See that Jan DeBont is the director of photography. Jan DeBont, of course, very famous director of photography. Uh, also the director of Speed, the first mm-hmm. Speed movie, amongst other things. John Sayles wrote the screenplay. John Sayles is another guy who's like one of those go-to writers. He wrote Return of the Secaucus 7, Brother from Another Planet, and stuff like that. So I'm like, okay. Right. You've also got Daryl Hannah in, like, I think it's her first starring role since Splash a couple years prior. And so I'm like, okay, great. Let's see what happens. I knew this was a movie that was going to be limited dialogue because of where the time frame it's set, and I, but I didn't really know anything about it. Opens up with this badly done earthquake sequence where it's one of those earthquakes where they just take the camera and shake it <laughs> up and down. It's one of those earthquakes. And during this earthquake, uh, this girl called uh, Isla is a little girl. Her mom falls into a chasm that splits in the ground and dies. So, so yeah, off to, off to a depressing start, basically. So it's just that happens. And then it goes into this narration, which runs through the whole movie, which is definitely a sign of when you have a movie that's truncating a pretty elaborate book and also a movie that's relying on the lack of dialogue. You need a narration narrator in there to try and keep people interested in it. So I was like warning sign number one. Um, 
So then it turns out Isla's a crow magnon. This is back in prehistoric time. She's a crow magnon and she's been wandering. She wanders through the 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 wilderness for a little while because she's lost her mom and she gets taken in by some Neanderthals. Now, Neanderthals are generally known as being less intelligent than Cro-Magnons, and they also have, you know, the heavy brows and are still a little bit more, you know, rough look, like prehistoric looking. Like they haven't, their features haven't quite evolved into what we're used to seeing now. So they take her in, and um, first thing I look at, I'm like, there's this guy called Kreb, who's the, the kind of like the the elder leader of the of the clan, the clan of the cave bear, they're called. And I'm like, it's fucking James Remar. And really? I didn't recognize him at all because of oh the makeup God. job. I'm like, fucking James Remar? I'm like, that's awesome. But I didn't know it was him because I couldn't tell. So he's kind of like, because he's got the heavy brow and his face is all scarred on one side. So like the makeup's pretty good. And I'm like, obviously it's pretty good if I didn't know it was James Remar. And um, and then it just kind of goes through her trying to integrate herself into the tribe. And they're all kind of laughing at her because, like, she's got the blonde hair and she doesn't have the unibrow and she looks way different from them. So they're like, ah, she's she's an outsider. We don't want her in our tribe. So on and so forth. She's just a woman. And uh, about a third of the way in, she's finally grown up into Daryl Hannah. And, you know, for, for those of you out there who are big fans of 80s Daryl Hannah, who saw Reckless and Splash and stuff like that, and are hoping that because she's in a in a caveman movie that she's going to be naked, you're going to be sadly disappointed. Uh, she just walks around a lot in loincloths. So if that's one of your contributing factors to watching this movie in the first place, don't do it. <laughs> um, but uh, it wasn't mine, but I'm just saying for those people who it would be. Um, so she shows up, and then it's kind of a pretty dull and uninvolving story of, you know fighting amongst the tribe trying to survive the winter uh her trying to do things that's not acceptable because she's female and uh, i'm just like okay well whatever and then they introduce one of the tribesmen called browd played by thomas g waits and he's kind of like the villain of this piece so he's the guy who's like i'm the big young buck and i'm eventually going to take over this clan and i'm going to get everyone to do what i want and you know he kind of latches onto Isla being an outsider and he does that thing that Josh was doing with his hands to her all the time <laughs> where he puts his two hands together and pulls and slaps them and it and she's supposed to be submissive to him when he does that and this leads to like a really really kind of disturbing you know rape sequence and and kind of gives you an idea of gives him makes him the villain of the piece basically and and that continues for the rest of the movie there's lots of hanging out in caves in this movie. Like they just hang out in caves and, you know, talk to each other in their, in their, in their Neanderthal language. And, and then, you know, I'm like, okay, well, not much is happening apart from the fact that one time Browd can't get it up and they laugh at him. I'm like, Oh, maybe he should have got some Viagra. Viagra. I was <laughs> like, okay. So early ad for that stuff. I mean, I guess they had in, impotence even back in the, in caveman days. And then, it kind of goes into a third act, which just has her like, you know, she's sent away to fend for herself while she's pregnant and she has to use the knowledge of these weapons she's learned. And then, you know, and then, you know, it, it's a 10 minute sequence, which is kind of wasting the potential of the movie. And then it's just the finale where all the tribes get together and shit goes down. So it, it's not the most exciting movie in the world. And I mean, and it's also dialogue free. It's, it's subtitled, it's you know it's it's a caveman movie like 
what do you expect from this? Like, you know, um, but uh, it's funny. Like there's some there's actually some pretty good stuff in this. Like there's like um, like the scenery is good. DeBont does very good at, you know, shooting the wilderness, which was all filmed in B.C. Yeah. Out here up here in British Columbia, beautiful British Columbia. They filmed Clan of the Cave Bear. Uh, So very good vistas and you know caves and all that kind of stuff uh there's a really cool scene uh where they go to a cave and a bear comes out and they have to fight the bear and that's a really cool sequence it it has a couple of gore moments here and there in that sequence and the bear is played by uh bart the bear who was in the movie the bear and he was also anytime like the great outdoors any movie where you need a bear that kind of looks vicious in the 80s that's bart the bear basically um and then there's a really cool scene where they have like a psychedelic trip out after drinking the bear's blood right right after that. And it's just all fucking weird. And, you know, she's walking in the clouds and sees her dead mother and stuff like that. I'm like, whoa, there's a psychedelic freak out in this movie. And and Hannah's OK, too. But it's a, let's just say it was better than I was expecting. Like when I went in, I was like, this is going to be garbage. I was like it flopped. It, 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 they, the budget on this was $15 million, which in 86 money is quite a bit of cash, and it didn't even make a million dollars opening weekend. Like, this was a massive flop. Yeah. So I was like, and you hear fans of this, you know, this uh, this book series also trashing the movie. So I was like, I had low expectations, and honestly, it, it got, it was one of those movies that kind of starts out kind of eh, and then by the end, I was like, yeah, it was okay. It was okay. Like, like you're saying compound fracture is like a two out of five. This is yeah. probably like a two and a half out of five. So okay. like, like I'm not blown away by it, but I was like, by the end of it, I was like, you know what? It's not quite as bad as its reputation. There is some stuff in here that I enjoyed. It's okay. Like, obviously it's not Daryl Hannah's high point. I mean, come on. But it's, and, and James Remar is pretty good in this, even though I didn't recognize him. And Curtis Armstrong is in this movie, dude. Really? from the revenge of the nerds movies plays one of the neanderthals and i also didn't recognize him at first either <laughs> so i was like whoa boogers wow. boogers in this the year after he did better off dead what the fuck but um it, it's all right it's all right like um they were apparently going to make a sequel to this like they were going to film a sequel back to back with this movie and then it was a huge box office disaster so they didn't bother um you know there's not many actual caveman type movies out there there's this and there's like quest for fire and 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 caveman the comedy with ringo star so i mean it's an interesting it's an interesting idea to make a movie about this but i really think that it's a very um hard thing to do and i think that clan of the cave bear didn't pull it off like they could have like i haven't seen quest for fire but i know it's directed by jean jacques anod who made the bear so i'm automatically assuming it's a much better film than this so have you seen yeah. this when i was a teenager you just um, remember the hand thing all, all i remember is the hand thing i did the bear thing when you mentioned it i it but i don't remember anything about it but i mean it does have two of the warriors and booger so i mean yeah. how bad can it be <laughs> yeah, like, like it's it, it's it's not terrible but just know going in what you're getting into i mean I when it was over I wasn't like fuck that sucked. I was just like, yeah. Interesting failure. Like yeah, you know, interesting failure. So yeah, that's uh, Clan of the Cave Bear from 86. Nice. No, I'm going to check it out. I, I have it somewhere. I 
I've been meaning to. It's one of those ones I did pick up, and I was kind of like, oh, I wouldn't mind revisiting this. So, but it's always good to see stuff shot shot, shot in the BC wilderness too, yeah. right? And if you can't find it, I'm sure you could have my DVD copy. <laughs> I think I, I'm pretty sure I have it somewhere, but God oh. knows. I have no idea anymore, even what I have. <laughs> <laughs> Me either, since the since the uh, website that I catalog my collection on has been having login problems, and I've been trying for three months to get a login. <laughs> oh, I told you, man. Get this app I have. It's awesome. <laughs> maybe maybe we should ask this app to sponsor us. <laughs> maybe we should, because it's great. My movies. <laughs> All right, what's next? <laughs> oh, I don't even know where to go from there. Do I get the crappy one out of the way, or do I do something better? I don't I'll know. let you decide. Um... Do the crappy one. All right. A new horror movie. <laughs> okay. Of course. Why do, why do I keep doing this to myself? Better not be oh, Fantasy Island. It is Fantasy Island. Oh, fuck. What a guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're in the middle of a plague, dude. There's not at all new horror movies. <laughs> wow. Um. I was actually pretty stoked for this one. So this is uh, yeah, Fantasy Island, Blumhouse, 2020, um, directed by Jeff Wadlow, who did uh, Truth or Dare, which I haven't seen, Kick-Ass 2, which I haven't seen, and Cry Wolf, which I have seen and did not like. Um, but I did hear, I think you said Truth or Dare was okay, right? I mean, Truth not. or Dare stunk. Did it? Okay. And Kick-Ass 2, I, I don't know. I just don't care about those. Um, yeah, okay. I, don't, I remember not really caring for Cry Wolf 2, though. Yeah. Okay, what have I got here? Okay, we've got... I don't... Okay, first of all, it's based on the TV show. I don't really know anything about the TV show other than it stars Ricardo, Ricardo Montalban and uh, Herbie Villachez. And uh, that's about all I knew about the TV show, honestly. Yeah. I had never seen the TV show, so I really don't didn't know what what it was all about or anything um so the premise here is that um there's this island and you can go to it and you get invited to it and then you can live out your you can ask them to in, give you your fantasy and it's kind of like a gin movie or a wishmaster movie where oh, no. you know a twist will happen on the fantasy so it's not always what you imagined right like like you know, I, I don't know. I, I just don't feel like being clever right now. But I mean, it's one of those ones where you wish for something, but they'll like they'll interpret the wish a certain way, so something shitty happens as well. And but you have to live through the whole thing, um, anyways. Um, so I'll just give you an example of like one of them. So like a couple, there's these two brothers, an Asian guy and a white guy, comic relief which is always my favorite, uh, played by Ryan Hansen and Jimmy O. Yang from uh, Veronica Mars and Silicon Valley, respectively. But they're these comic relief brothers. They wish to be rich and like, live in a mansion and have, um, you know, all the girls they want, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so they get that fantasy, but then they get targeted by um, some bad guys who want to, like, take over the mansion. And that's the negative part that, that comes with the fantasy. So that's kind of the idea. So they don't just get all the all the good stuff. There's also bad stuff that comes with the fantasy that you also have to deal with. So we've got another woman who like botched a proposal when she was uh, younger and wants another chance at that. There is a guy, a cop, a cop guy who wanted to be a soldier. So his fantasy is to become a soldier. 
And then there's this girl who wants revenge on someone who bullied her when she was younger. So, so far, so good. I mean, I do like those kind of movies. Like, I like the Wishmaster movies and things like this. So I like that idea. So I was, I was kind of into it. I, I do like a lot of Blumhouse movies. So I, I was I had pretty high hopes. I like Michael Pena, who plays the Ricardo Maltavon character. Um, so I was, okay, so far, so good. Then Michael Rooker shows up. And Michael Rooker is just like this kind of like um, haggard dude like that's living in the forests around the resort and he's like kind of this like kind of like the crazed lunatic like homeless dude who's like running around like shouting out that there's all these problems with the island he's and I'm like, friday the 13th exactly exactly so i'm like oh god okay well I, I like rooker but um i don't really like where this is going then it literally goes into places where there's like a mad doctor played by someone like Tyler Maine or or Derek Mears running around like looking all threatening with a big knife and his bald head and then there's zombies at one point and um, it just kind of went off in this direction that I wasn't expecting and was like super let down by and then by the end it just started getting so clever for its own good kind of like the other movie uh, uh, Compound Fracture that I was just kind of lost, like by the in the fat third act, and this is so common. We've talked about this lots, but the third act, this movie just tries to out clever itself over and over again. So by the time you're kind of almost near the end, you don't even know what's happening anymore. And then a few other things happen at the end where you're they don't even make any sense, and you're just kind of feeling cheated, and you're just kind of like, why didn't they just? I never understand why they just don't keep it simple and give us this cool premise and leave it at that like why did we have to have zombies involved why was this like stock villain from a from a uh, torture porn movie running around with his knife like and then why is there this like cgi founded of youth in the middle of everything so yeah super disappointed i i expected a lot more for this um you know we had some decent cast members kim coates was in this um Mike Vogel, who's usually pretty reliable, um, but yeah, overall I was just kind of kind of bummed. Um, definitely set up for a sequel. I really don't care if it happens. Um, yeah, there just wasn't much here. Like no gore, no skin, like no fun. It was just kind of trying to be something way more than it 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 um, needed to be. This could have been a very. Did you watch the unrated cut? I did, but and it still was tame. I felt like it was pretty tame. Yeah, like, I mean, there was... And I just, you know, I hate it when people, like, see visions of shit. Like, I hate uh, that stuff. And I just kind of wanted the fantasy stuff. And then, like, I wanted to see a bunch of people, like, getting their fantasy. And then, like, watching them go through that. And then seeing shit go wrong. And how they deal with it. That's what I wanted. That was, like, the first half hour. And then after that, it just went into this weird zombie thing. And I, I just... Uh, yeah it was it was it was really really lame i was super let down um but i but i i am kind of intrigued to see the show now because apparently the show that's what it is every week it's someone going there getting their wish and then shit going wrong Mm -hmm. so i am kind of curious now about the actual show so if that was part of the intent was to get me to watch the original fantasy island they succeeded but i don't think that was the intent (laughs) I think the intent was to rip off the premise from the original show and try and do something cool, but it just yeah, it just didn't oh. work for me. 
they were doing that thing. Look at how cool we are taking this old property and trying to twist it into this new vision. Mm -hmm. Isn't this the coolest? It's kind of like they did with the Banana Splits movie, but at least the Banana Splits movie, they did it tongue in cheek and knew what they were doing. This one just doesn't sound like sound like they were just like, let's take as minimal amount of stuff from the show as we can. Yeah, and I like I wonder if I was a big fan of the show, how if I'd be like way more pissed off, probably. Yeah. But I, I have no attachment at all, like zero to the show. So um, I didn't really care if I saw a tattoo running around. I knew that wasn't gonna happen in today's day and age anyways. But um yeah, anyway, I I would definitely say avoid this one. For sure. Yeah, I have no interest in it. I have yeah. no interest in it whatsoever. Even yeah. from the minute they announced this, I was like, nope, not interested. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well, I guess I can follow up Fantasy Island with a movie that's fucking entertaining as shit. Can we do that? Sure. <laughs> Let's talk about a movie that you talked about last episode that I said I would watch from your from your your uh, box set that you're in love it with, and that's oh, no. a movie. That's a movie called Stanley. From 1972. And dude, 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 (laughs) let's talk about Stanley. I don't know how to talk about Stanley. First of all, um, the main guy, Tim, played by Chris Robinson, um, you said at times he was like Jake the Snake, I believe. Well, just with his dumb Because he walks around with a sack of snakes. And yeah. I, that's all I was thinking about. I was waiting for him to fucking DDT someone at least <laughs> once in the movie because he's just walking around with a sack of snakes. And this is a guy who's I, when I looked into him, it blows my mind. He's still a working actor. He's been in so much stuff around the same time as Stanley. He was writing, directing and starring in his own movies in Florida. He made some movie called Black Rage, which sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, and an awesome cover. Yeah. And. He was the guy on the TV commercials that was like, I'm not really a doctor, but I play one on TV. Really? Yeah. He was that guy. I remember oh those God. commercials when I was a kid. And that was Chris Robinson. So that in itself, I was like, whoa. So and then this is also my first experience with William Griffey, who is a, a regional Florida filmmaker, who also made a movie called Mako, the Jaws of Death after this, which sounds to have the exact same plot as Stanley, only it's a shark instead of snakes. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and uh, there was a documentary, like I said, last episode made fro- about him by Ballyhoo Pictures, which I've been trying to see, but unfortunately they don't ship to Canada, so it's going to be What's harder to come again? by. Uh, it came from the swamp, I believe it's called. So uh, anyway, <laughs> the opening scene is like you said, it's like the Wilderness Family, because it's just, you know, Tim rowing his way through the Everglades, just seeing every fucking animal <laughs> known to man, even animals that I don't think live in Florida, while this folky song plays about Mother Nature and how great Mother Nature is and all this stuff. And, you know, first two minutes, you got me, you know, you got me. That's all there is to it. So it's also him walking through wilderness and a rattlesnake bites him on the ankle. Yeah. And he looks at it, he's like, now, why'd you have to do that? <laughs> <laughs> and then he picks it up and puts it in his bag and cuts cuts in his leg and squeezes the poison out of his leg. And I'm like, man, Tim's a badass right now. <laughs> so, you know, sweet folk song playing with the la-la-la-la-las during the credits. And then the dude literally has a fucking cabin full of snakes. Like, yeah. <laughs> he, 
you literally walk in his he walks into his cabin and it's just cage after cage after I cage can't after believe, cage. I can't believe neither of us have seen this until now. Like it is just so no, bonkers. But, like yeah well yeah where has like, this movie like, been all my life <laughs> i don't know but it's like a cabin of snakes and he's taking the snakes and selling their venom to the doctors but then there's these other dudes this asshole business guy who wants him to catch snakes so he can make them into wallets and belts and shit and this leads to like a whole bunch of like everglade drama and a lot of anti-native american sentiment in this movie like yeah when they show up they basically like you dumb engine and all this stuff and i'm like and i'm just whoa like this is a 70s movie there's a whole bunch of like but it's handled by grife as in like these guys are fucking assholes they shouldn't be saying this about our main character and i also got kind of a very very mild billy jack vibe from that whole thing like the mm, we hate true. Native yeah, yeah. Americans, blah blah blah. And, and so Tim's just like, I want my rattlesnakes. I just want them to be friends with them. And he's got his main bro fa- rattlesnake called Stanley, who's like, yeah. you know, he's like his his Willard, basically, based like very similar vibes to that movie. And <laughs> I love the scene that you can see in the trailer where when he's going to sell venom to the doctor, Stanley's mm-hmm. sitting in the the pickup beside him. And he's like, No, Stanley, you have to stay in the car. People just don't understand friendly rattlesnakes. And I'm yeah. like, oh, my God, that's so awesome. But, of course, Stanley, you know, he he doesn't listen. He's a fucking snake. So he sneaks out of the van, <laughs> the pickup, and causes havoc in the doctor's office. And right after that, we see Tim go off to the strip club, the climax, <laughs> where he meets Gloria, who is a burlesque dancer, and his dad's ex-wife or girlfriend. I wasn't really that sure. And I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, now we have a burlesque dancer in this movie? And, you know, and he's like, she kind of, like, seems like she's into into Tim. But at the same time, you're like, dude, you used to be a stepmom. That's kind of, and you're old. It's creepy. Um, it is. So, and then it just goes into, like, but she's Stanley. like, she's, oh, hold on. She's like a stripper in a John Waters movie. Like, yeah, basically, yeah. Like a, yeah, like it's like that older haggard strip. Yeah, with all the caked on makeup. And then her husband's like this portly, like chunky dude with like, you know, he's got the uh, the high school chemistry teacher hairline where it's just yeah. like a ring of hair around his, above his ears. And he's always like, we're going to come up with a new thing to make money. We're not making enough money. I'm like, you're in a fucking strip club in the middle of the nowhere, but fuck nowhere in the Everglades. Of course, you're not making any money. <laughs> but but anyway, uh, we have scenes of Stanley biting a, a thug on the ass and i gotta tell you the snake attack scenes in this are fucking awesome because it's just like a close-up of the snakes jolting towards the camera and then it's a rubber snake clinging to the actor and i'm like this is awesome i'm enjoying this quite a bit um we've got uh we've got uh <laughs> alex rocco playing tompkins who's the main guy who wants to make the belts in that and he's a fucking scumbag because he, there's a scene early on where he's lounging by his his outdoor pool and his daughter comes by in a bikini and he's like, you're looking so fine. And he's like grabbing at her leg and that. And and she's like, you're a creep, dad. Like, you're such a dirty creep. And his it's her name's Susie, played by Susan Carroll. Only movie she was she's ever been in. And, uh, you know, and then it's just like... <laughs> It's just like this fucking ridiculous bonkers man and boy in a snake movie, basically like, you know, Stanley's got a girlfriend called Hazel and they had babies and and Tim comes home with like custom made fucking 
canopy beds for Hazel and Stanley, and you know it's got their names written on it and everything, and 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 you've got this character called Psycho who who is out with the other guys, like you know looking for snakes in the wilderness, and he's snorting cocaine, and he's like taking quaaludes and he's threatening to kill his co-workers and he's like lying at the side of this fucking swamp jeep and he's like yeah mother yeah mother because he's all fucking high and i'm like this guy's a fucking hippie reject and he's amazing and then of course you got they're chasing after stanley we've got that amazing quicksand scene that you talked yeah. about it is pretty awesome i mean it, it, quicksand I'm, I'm with you on board this man yeah, i was I especially love the part where Stanley's slithering across the quicksand towards the last guy, the, the fatter guy. And yeah. you can see Stanley slithering. It's a POV of the guy who's in the quicksand. Like, it shows him up to his neck in the quicksand. And it's POV of that guy. And it just shows the camera go bloop underneath the quicksand. And I'm like, that's pretty awesome, too. So, you know, that's got all this stuff going on. You know, you've got, you've got like, this, uh, this, this dinner meltdown with with vegetarians and crying and all this stuff you've got like you've got like psycho going into into tim's cabin and and killing some of the snakes which like totally sets tim off and i thought that scene was actually pretty well done to be honest yep. with you like yep. i was like i actually felt bad for tim after that scene because the guy comes in with like a rifle and just is fucking hammering the snakes to death and the, it was a pretty effective scene in what's essentially awful. yeah uh, yeah like and it's essentially a fucking bonkers b movie has this in it i'm like oh, that actually works pretty well um and then you know there's a you know there's a, some sneaking in windows there's slow motion snake tossing uh we got alex rocco's character again you know being creeped by his outdoor pool but he thinks he's like this this cracked me the fuck up and you'll agree with me of this he goes out to his pool he's got his robe on takes his robe off has just his swim shorts on. Goes in front of a full-length mirror. Starts sucking in his gut and flexing out. He's this hairy fucking gross guy. And he's like looking like he's a stud. Picks up five-pound weights. And starts <laughs> oh, yeah. lifting these five-pound weights. And I'm like, dude, five-pound weights? That's like fucking what Jane Fonda uses on her workout tapes. And he's just like, yeah, yeah. The, his, his moment in this movie with, with the snakes in the pool fucking priceless it was rad fucking priceless i mean these are spoilers sorry people but there's a slow motion moment in that scene like a freeze frame that oh, is yeah, yeah. so good so good so good um and then it just becomes this like weird fucking like the movie's already over long because it's an hour and 47 minutes long and the last 20 minutes is basically tim kidnapping Susie. Boats are off. He's, he kidnaps her. And again, there's a scene of him care in the boat, taking him her back to his cabin. And there's a fucking folk song playing, talking about how <laughs> you're the first woman and I'm the first man. We're like Adam and Eve. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? And then it just goes off the rails for the last 10 minutes. I'm not even going to say anything. I'm going to leave it as a treat for everybody who wants to watch Stanley and should watch Stanley. This is fucking insane dude dude you didn't talk about what the stripper did oh yeah well you already you covered that pretty good the stripper basically goes all aussie on a on a snake and it sets tim off like she, she bites the head off a fucking snake during her her dancing routine and and uh tim doesn't like that so yeah uh, this is fucking nuts like this movie is 
fucking nuts. Yeah. But because of this, this is a high recommendation from yeah. me. Like, I agree. high recommendation. If you don't want to spend the, whatever, 50 to $70 for this box set that Josh loves, which you probably should, you can get this in the Gorehouse Great set, too, which is 12 movies. Most of them you've already talked about, which is yeah. where I watched it. And like you said, print quality is really good. I know. And it is anamorphic widescreen. And, you know, get down with Stanley, man. This, this movie is fucking great. Like, great. <laughs> I mean, I saw people on Letterboxd after I watch this saying this movie was boring oh i know and i'm just like what the fuck were you watching (laughs) this movie was so fucking bizarre i was entranced from start to finish i was just like i'm like what's gonna happen next there's already been like seven slow motion snake attacks what could possibly go wrong oh wait he just she bit the head off a snake what's gonna happen oh kidnapping what's next it's crazy it's high recommendation that's stanley please watch it please buy it Make yeah, us happy. It's, it's awesome, and I think I think Code Red put it out. Was it Code Red? I think, I think so. it was. I think it was Code Red put it out at some point too. So, so hard yeah. to find on on that, but yeah, easy to find in the uh, Mill Creek stuff. And easy to recommend. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm glad you checked it out, man. That's awesome. Oh man, it was way better than I, my expectations could have ever hoped for. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about one I watched that you've seen. Okay. Um, because I just, I, I, I wasn't going to talk about this, but then I just, I, I know you slammed this movie oh, and I, oh, I, I just, I just have to, I know what this is already. Oh yeah. <laughs> you do know what it is. And that's the street fighter and the legend of Chun-Li from 2004 directed by Andre, uh, Bark, Bark Kowiak, who did Romeo must die and, uh, the, the original doom movie. Now, this is not a good movie. I completely agree with Chris, but goddamn, this was an entertaining movie. Okay, just for Chris Klein's performance alone, this is a must-see because I have I can't remember the last time I've seen a sort of an A-list actor slumming it and just phoning it in but in the most hilarious way possible as Chris, as Chris Klein in this movie. When you first talked about it, I was just surprised Chris Klein was in this movie. But dude, he like hams it up and cheeses it up like I haven't seen in a long time. Every moment this guy was on screen, I was in love with him. I thought it was just amazing. So I fully recommend this movie oh, for boy. Chris Klein's performance. And also, Neil McDonough, who is um, a character actor, but he, he always kind of hams it up a bit, too. But he really goes for it in this one with the, like, probably the worst Irish accent I've ever seen. As he's running around and he, like, you know, rips a baby out of someone's stomach at one point. And he's doing kung fu. Um, I thought the fight scenes in this were really good. Oh, sorry, I haven't even talked about the plot. So this is well, Street Fighter. <laughs> do, you, do you want to talk about the plot? It's about Chun Li from terrible. Street Fighter and her story. Her parent, her dad gets kidnapped at the beginning. She basically by Neil McDonough, and it's basically her all grown up trying to find her her dad. And she's um, taught how to do kung fu and shit by her dad, and also by Robin Shao from uh, the Mortal Kombat movies. Also along for the ride is Moon Bloodgood as a detective in like who's like I don't, like the worst detective ever, but not quite as bad as Chris Klein. 
but she's only there to be like a sex object for Chris Clyde. Mm-hmm. Like that's her only purpose. And I, I thought she was pretty hilarious. Taboo from the Black Eyed Peas no. plays Vega. Why are you bringing me back bad memories? <laughs> it, was, it was awesome. I think if Michael I watched Clark, this with you, I might I might have enjoyed it. Michael Clark, Clark Duncan playing Balrog, and like again, just like what is he doing in this movie? There's like um, uh, Kristen Crook's character. She has to seduce another woman at some point because she wants to like fight her in the bathroom so there's like this super awkward lesbian dance seduction sequence on this dance floor in this club that was super hilarious dude i fucking loved it i th- i was wow. super super enjoying this movie wow so, <laughs> i posted some scenes from chris klein's performance on our facebook group if you look at those and think it's funny you'll probably love this movie but if you think that they're if you are on the other hand like oh Oh like my me. god, so terrible. Like me. Uh, you're not going to like this movie, but I he was fucking hilarious. Yeah, he was fit. hilarious. Everything about him, the way he walked, every every no, there wasn't one line delivery that wasn't ridiculous. Like I I don't I don't know what he was thinking, like was it intentional? Like I've never really thought of him as just an actor anyway. Like is he that bad or was he like intentionally doing that? Like I don't know. Like, just the way he was, like, even, like, the, the one-liners, I love this job, loved it. And every time he, like, hangs up a walkie-talkie, he'd be like, Nash, out! And it was just hilarious, even when he did that. Like, everything, the way he walked, the way he shot, the way he ran, the way he ate fucking chow mein, it was awesome. Yeah. So I, I'd recommend checking this out if you, like, you love shitty, cheesy movies. Because oh, this one was... The number one, and I've talked, said it before, I'll say it again. The number one problem with movies like this is when they're boring, and I was never bored in this movie. So there you go. I'm keeping it. I'm fucking <laughs> keeping it. Okay. Have fun. <laughs> <laughs> you forgot to mention that the main actress who plays Chun Li looks very non Asian for the most part. Well, she's half Asian. Yeah, but I mean, in the, in the video game, she's totally full on. And yeah. Anyway. It, uh, and the little girl that that <laughs> she's a little girl, she's fully Chinese. Yeah, yeah. And then grows up to be half Chinese, half French. Well, you know, have at it, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think have you know have a shot every time McDonald fucks up his accent, like you'd be drunk in like five minutes. Like, oh yeah, I, I I enjoyed it quite a bit. I mean, definitely one that you'd want to watch with friends, but um, I, I would not give it the hard pass you did. Okay, fair, fair, fair enough. Fuck, I I don't even know how to follow that. Um, okay, <laughs> let's talk about. Let's look here. Okay, <laughs> let's talk about. <laughs> let's talk about a movie that popped up on that that a listener, our listener Adam, our frequent, uh, our frequent, uh, you know. He's always recommending stuff to us, and this is one he recommended recently on our Facebook group, and I I tracked down a copy of it. It's a movie from 1987 called The Wild Pair, starring Bo Bridges and Bubba Smith. Oh, God, yeah. So so this this was Bo Bridges directing as well. Uh, He... After this, he directed a movie called Seven Hours to Judgment, which I quite enjoyed. And this one is uh, Bo Bridges deciding to make a buddy cop action comedy um it's also an opportunity to get to see bubba smith 
playing something other than Hightower in the Police Academy movies. So he does get to play it a bit more action hero-y, although he, it is very distracting that he spends most of this movie with his fucking socks, his pants tucked into his socks. I did find that super distracting <laughs> for some reason because he's wearing those high tube socks and his fucking oh, pants, are, and his pants really? are tucked into them. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. So that was a bit much. So anyway, yeah, I know that's a fashion faux pas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so basically, in this, uh, Bubba Smith plays this cop called Benny, who like he's pretty well liked around his his hood, which is like this kind of ghetto-y type thing. And you know, the opening scenes just him walking through the neighborhood, say interacting with them, like, "Hey, what's going on?" And like, "Benny" or whatever. And then he's like, you know, he's what kind of play basketball with one of the one of the youths there that's like one of the less fortunate youths. He's like, "Come on down to the court, and we'll shoot some hoops and all that stuff." And then, uh, you know, while he's doing that. These commando types show up out of the blue, stab a few people, toss some bombs into the buildings, and drive off. And I'm like, whoa, that's a pretty good beginning, I gotta admit. Um, and then, right after that, it goes to our introduction to Bo Bridges as he is sitting in the middle of a strip club. So we're talking long, lingering shots of strippers. <laughs> like... <laughs> long lingering shots i just get the feeling that bo bridges was like i'm the fucking director i'm around all these naked women this scene's going on for as long as i goddamn want this scene to go on for <laughs> so in that he's like in there he get you know bubba smith's character benny comes into the bar and then there's a big bar brawl just you know bar brawl you know Bubba Smith's tossing people around. Bo Bridges is punching people in the face. A fucking stripper gets hip-tossed by a guy. Like, literally <laughs> hip-tossed. And then, you know, people are thrown through barriers and all that. And then, you know, it turns out that Bo Bridges was in there because he's an FBI agent who's trying to crack down a drug dealer who was in the strip club. And Benny fucked it all up for him. So, uh... then, Q, of course... The yelling police captain, which we've seen in Lethal Weapon and all these types of movies, who has them in his office and is tearing a strip off of them for fucking everything up, forces them to become partners. Um, we're introduced to Lloyd Bridges, Bo Bridges' dad, who I mostly know from Airplane and Hot Shots and comedies yeah. like that, playing the leader of a militant group where he has really? a cop where he has a compound in the middle of nowhere where he's training people to be soldiers and he's a super fucking racist who's blaming all the ethnic groups for America's drug problems and wants to eliminate them. Kind of sounds like Donald Trump in some ways, uh -huh. but um, it's fucking weird to see Lloyd Bridges doing this. Like he basically says it's all those yellow people and black people and all them bringing all the drugs into here. And we're going to, we're going to take care of this problem and everything. So I'm like, okay, we've got that going on. Then it just becomes set pieces of Bridges' character and Bubba Smith's character trying to track down a drug dealer and, you know, bust him, basically. And one of the set pieces, which was really awesome, was they go into a triple X theater. Uh, they sit down with a big bucket of popcorn. Bridges likes, I got to go to the bathroom. Leaves Bubba Smith sitting there. Bubba Smith's sitting there watching this porn movie. And the porn movie on the screen is like that cute and like, oh, yeah, baby. Oh, yeah. You know, I like that. And then she's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Lick my feet. Lick my feet. And it's this fucking greasy guy licking someone's feet on the screen. 
And Bubba Smith's got this look of like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm watching this on his face while he's munching popcorn. And then this fucking businessman guy comes and sits down beside him and, like, grabs some of the popcorn and starts eating it and smiling at him. And Bubba Smith thinks it's, like, Bo Bridges' character. This business guy throws a jacket over Bubba Smith's lap because he's going to jack him off. No. And Bubba Smith looks at him. He's like, Mm-mm, rips his coat in half and tells him to fuck off. <laughs> then these guys come in and start trying to shoot at him in the middle of this porno movie. He fucking rips a row of seat out from the ground and runs at them to block the bullets. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that, does, that sounds worth the price of admission right definitely, there. Definitely the best set piece in this entire movie. From there, there's a set piece set in a firehouse that's being converted into a casino slash restaurant with Bubba Smith chasing a guy down a dumbwaiter by sliding down fireman poles. <laughs> really? <laughs> yep. There's a... And right after that, the Bo Bridges and Bubba Smith's character go into a grocery store and have to thwart a robbery, which leads to a shootout in the middle of the of a fucking grocery store. Wow. <laughs> and then we have a scene, a really weird scene with uh, with uh, Benny's character, Bubba Smith's character, on a rooftop conducting an orchestra of kids, making them make weird noises. And he calls it an emotional orchestra. And the kids need it to get rid of all their bad thoughts. There's that scene in this movie. Mm. And then it just becomes like just these lo- like just like sequences like Lloyd Bridges hasn't been in this movie much. He shows up once in a while to be like, ah, yeah, America, yeah, kill everyone, drugs. And then they're mostly just going after this drug dealer. But if, if you want to see a scene in a movie where the two two these two actors who look like they're so innocent. Bo Bridges and Bubba Smith walk into a sex shop and make jokes about dildos before having a conversation with a guy in a peep show booth. This movie's got you covered. It really (laughs) does. And then just the end of this movie is just this really long chase sequence with like Bubba Smith driving a pizza delivery moped down a hill. And, you know, and then he goes home and he, he goes to his house and his girlfriend's dead. And for some reason, he has flashbacks to seeing her being murdered in the shower psycho style. And I'm like, how does he manage to see these flashbacks? He wasn't fucking there, but he's seeing them. I'm like, I guess Bo Bridges just wanted to have this like horror movie psycho ripoff scene in the oh, movie. Oh, weird, yeah. And then it just it, it's just a whole bunch of things blowing up and people being shot and cars crashing in the end. And I'm like, yeah, it's OK. <laughs> it's OK. With all the potential here, it's OK. I, I prefer. I'd check it out based on your review. I preferred Seven Hours to Judgment for Bo Bridges' 80s action jams. But but The Wild Pair, it is kind of lower-rung buddy cop movies. Like, it's probably down there with, like, Delta Heat, which I talked about on a past episode. You know, the Anthony Edwards, Lance Henriksen one. Or, like, Downtown with uh, Forrest Whitaker and Anthony Edwards. Like, it's kind of on that level. So... If you know it, it's not running scared or shakedown level, not even close, or even Lethal Weapon 1 level. It's not up there. But if you enjoyed Lethal Weapon 3 and 4, you might like this. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, for what it is, for what it is, completely watchable, worth it just to sit down and, and, and just chuckle at it. But don't expect high art because you're not going to get it. It's just some late 80s trans world entertainment movie that was dumped on media home video and has never made it past vhs so 
it's it's all right for what it is but i you have to know what you're getting into or else you're not going to like it let's put it that way is it available on streaming anywhere um i watched a vhs copy so i don't oh really yeah oh wow so i don't know if it's available on streaming i know it's not on prime because i did look on prime yeah i think it's pretty hard to come by but if you can find it give it a shot well i'll I'll buy that vhs off you for sure give it a shot that's the wild pair from 1987 thanks for the recommendation adam (laughs) yeah no kidding all right, let's uh, let's bring it down a bit. Uh, I watched a movie from Artsploitation that's been sitting on my shelf for a while called The Treatment from 2014, directed by Hans Herbolt. Um, this is a Belgian or a Dutch movie, um, so made in Belgium. Um, this is based on a book um, by Mo Hader, a British novelist. Um, crime novelist. Um, you probably know who she is. I, yeah. I didn't. She wrote the Devil and Devil and Nan King. I think her most famous one is called The Birdman. Yeah, that was her first one. Yeah. And um, there's a character named Jack Caffrey that apparently goes through a number of his of her books. Yeah. Um, so this is a Dutch take on on um, that character. Um, so yeah. I didn't really know what I had no idea what to expect from this one. Um, I just knew it was a dark thriller from from Belgium. Um, so we we opened with a cop named Mick, uh, played by Geert von Rampling van Rampelberg. Um, really good job. Uh, really, this is a really serious serious movie, a serious dark thriller like along the lines of you know Seven or something like that. Um, so it opens with this cop. Um, there's a case where this uh, family was imprisoned and they've been released. Um, but there's a mystery about what happened. No one knows how, um, who did this to them. Um, they find the wife um, in this cupboard and they find the dad and the, the, um, the, the child um, chained up in, in, this, in this apartment. And they're all fucked up and all this bad shit happened to them. Um, like really bad shit um, in, you know, involving child abuse and things like that um, so Nick decides to take this on because something happened in his past where his brother was abducted by a child molester um, Nick you know is one of these badass cops who's like um, kind of goes rogue doesn't really listen to his boss Danny um, and he tries to get involved and try and figure out what's going on and um why these why these children are going missing and, and these families are being kidnapped so he basically discovers there's this underground pedophile network um, run by this guy named Plentinix um, and uh, it just goes to some really really dark places um, this is definitely not for the faint of heart um, some of the some of the stuff it showed, I, I it doesn't get into like graphic detail. Like we're not talking like Serbian film or anything, but um, it does get pretty intense. Like with some of the stuff that happens, and um, well, speaking of Serbian film, there is some stuff that happens that's on par with some of the stuff that happens in that movie. Um, I mean, yeah, like massive trigger warning if you're like at all affected by child abuse or child sexual abuse stuff. 
Um, so it's hard to pull this kind of movie off without it becoming exploitation, but this movie does manage to do that, kind of like David Fincher's Seven. It does, um, or even a movie like Prisoners. Um, it, but it is, it has that tone where it's just kind of bleak, and you know nothing good's gonna happen. But um, I didn't know what I didn't know anything about this, and I do know like the stuff I've seen from art exploitation so far. They're usually pretty selective about what they release, so I was expecting it to be pretty good. Um, I didn't even know it was based on the novel by Mo Hader until our, our listener Darren mentioned that to me. Um, so it's you know kind of a big deal because I know she is a, a pretty big name. Um, it's long; it's over two hours. But it's super engaging, right? I mean, this this guy that carries this movie, uh, Van Rampelberg, is excellent. Um, and yeah, I just think if you're a fan of like dark thrillers or dark cop investigation movies, um, it's pretty good. It's pretty, it's really good actually, and I'd recommend it. But it's it's not a happy movie whatsoever. Um, there were a few times where I did think some of the clues he found were a little like excessively convenient um which is probably my only kind of problem with this movie but uh yeah it was really good really good movie um another good um addition to the art exploitation um family um and one that i'm assuming is super underseen so um definitely worth seeking out if this sounds appealing to you at all if you like dark cop thrillers um, mysteries, bleak. Yeah, you'll like you'll like this quite a bit, but it's not not something I can get too excited about. It's not like Stanley, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but oh, no. um, but you know, it's one of those ones that I just think uh, isn't isn't well known, and uh, probably more people should should see it because it's very well done. I don't think there's much out there like Stanley. <laughs> but, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Art art exploitation definitely does uh, put out some interesting stuff and it's it's unfortunate that i feel like they don't really have um as much of a you know following as someone like vinegar syndrome or someone like that have but i i know a lot of their stuff is available on prime video so maybe that's on there yeah it might be and this is um yeah i mean they, they do pick up these weird movies that probably aren't like i i don't know i if i ran a dvd company this is not what i would pick up because yeah. it's a hard sell right it's fucking belgian and then also it's bleak right i mean it's not yeah. a very good combination but but there's definitely a, a market for for stuff like this that people that like these kind of movies all right cool so that's the treatment so let's follow the treatment with something happy okay <laughs> let's talk about pretty in pink from 1986 oh my god Let, let's do it i figured it's a good segue let's go yep. from Let's go from child abuse to child abuse, <laughs> because if, if you grew up in this 80s, some people might consider this movie to be child abuse to themselves when they watched it. Um, so anyway, <laughs> this is another one of those uh, mid 80s John Hughes penned teen films that has very beloved to these day these days. Um, I'm slowly working my way back through them as a, an adult to see if they hold up uh, some kind of wonderful like I talked about not too long ago did not really hold up for me uh admittedly pretty in pink has always kind of been on the lower rung for me like after 16 candles and weird science and breakfast club even uh this is still now on the lower rung for me after i watched it this time uh unlike the other prior movies hughes did not direct this one it was directed by howard Deutch, 
who went on to direct some kind of wonderful and also did the John Hughes pen, the great outdoors with John Candy and Dan Aykroyd mm-hmm. a couple years later. Um, this is a very basic, basic story. It's just a girl from the wrong side of the tracks played by Molly Ringwald, who is kind of eccentric and makes her own clothes and lives with a dad who's unemployed and kind of seems like he might be a little bit alcoholic or whatever, whose mom, whose wife slash her mom has passed away and he's having a hard time getting over it. She goes to this fancy high school on the other side of the tracks and she, uh, Right, and there's a bunch of preppy guys there, and one of them's played by Andrew McCarthy, and she kind of has a crush on him. Uh, yeah. But his like, but his like best friend is is James Spader, who's the king of the douches, and is so fucking good in this, playing a douche like he was in all the <laughs> '80s movies, like the New Kids, and you know, J- James Spader. Let's fucking talk about James Spader, okay? <laughs> Everybody likes James Spader in the Blacklist now, but James Spader was fucking rad in the '80s before yeah. any of that shit and people better recognize james spader's greatness <laughs> in the 80s the new kids fucking tough turf pretty in pink yeah. anytime you needed a preppy douchebag james spader was there and delivering the fucking goods <laughs> and he does in this movie too and i read that he was originally supposed to play andrew mccarthy's part but he decided he didn't want to because he would rather be the asshole Thank you, James Spader. Thank you very much. Andrew McCarthy's a guy who I've never really understood his no. appeal. No. Like, we, like fucking Saint Elmo's Fire. Fuck, fuck that movie. But Saint Elmo's Fire, not so good in it. Mannequin. Why would Kim Cattrall be interested in Andrew McCarthy? Kim Cattrall's a fucking nice-looking woman. She. Why would she go for Andrew McCarthy? Come on, let's yeah. be honest here. Yeah. And in this movie, he just has that look about him. I don't know what it is. It's just this look of like. You just kind of want to punch him in the face. In a way. Totally. I knew I, I dated this girl who was really into him though, and I really? don't know. Yeah. I I just don't get it. Like he just doesn't seem like, like I don't know. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy that girls would be like, oh my god, I totally want him. Yeah. But uh, but in this movie, it's basically it becomes like kind of a love triangle movie because it's like Molly Ringwald's character has a crush on Blaine. I think his name's Blaine played by andrew mccarthy but at the same time her best friend ducky played by john crier has this longing for her and gets all jealous that she's hooking up with blade and acts like a fucking prick to her through the whole movie and it's this love triangle going on and there's these side stories with like annie potts playing iona who's this like punkette looking girl who owns the record store where ringwald's character works and she's fucking charming as hell in this movie like they've given her like really like weird outfits like she has spiky hair one day and the next day she's wearing this and that but she's like gives she's the older girl older woman who gives ringwald's character advice but also runs a pretty kick-ass record store and is just cool like i want a movie about her more than i want a movie about molly ringwald's character to be honest um we also got harry dean stanton playing her father harry dean stanton's a fucking treasure no matter what he's in and again he is in this movie he's He's not in it a lot, but when he is in it, he's very convincing as the distraught, rundown dad. And I love Harry Dean Stanton, and anyone who doesn't can fight me about it. So, you know, he's great. You you know that. Oh, yeah. oh absolutely. Um, and then we've got also early appearances from Gina Gershon's in this. Uh, we've got Kate Vernon in this. She's She's been in a lot of stuff that 
that you'd know. And Andrew Dice Clay shows up in this as the as the bouncer outside of the club that that they go to watch shows that will never let Ducky in. So he has alley conversations with Ducky while smoking his cigarette in his in his uh, Andrew Dice Clay way that he does. You know how he had that way of smoking a cigarette where yeah. he's like put it like fucking twisted his hand weird to smoke a cigarette. Yeah. He yeah, does that yeah. in this movie. Um, <laughs> but yeah. It, for what this is, I still think it's okay. Like, I think the the story is pretty basic, to be honest. Like, I don't think Hughes was really doing much different here. But yeah. for some reason, because Ringwald was his muse and everybody was kind of enamored with her after the la- after the previous movies, everyone went to see Pretty in Pink. But I-, I don't think she's that great of an actress, to be honest with you. Like, I found in this movie she just does a lot of chewing of her lower lip. Mm. Like, whenever she's like has to do anything dramatic she just chews her lower lip to camera like mm, i'm confused about what i'm gonna do in life mm, chew my lower lip and uh, you know and john crier's character is so fucking obnoxious in this movie yeah like 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 there is a scene in this movie where he finally gets into the nightclub with where annie potts character and then ring ringwald and andrew mccarthy are on a date and you know, they double date with Annie Potts character and she brings along Ducky and Ducky is such an asshole to the to the Andrew McCarthy character, like such an asshole. And then when he's just like, hey, like, you know, stop. Like, why are we doing this? Ringwald, like her character, Andy, her name is she st- sticks up for the Blaine character and Ducky starts being an asshole to her, too. Oh, so he's like, yeah, he's like, you should leave like, you know. They get up and leave, and he's like, yeah, go, get out of here, right? Like, Ducky's like, fuck off, basically. And then he, like, he yells at her when she's walking away. He's like, yo, Andy, or whatever. Grabs Andy Potts' character and, like, fucking starts kissing her. And then looks at Andy and goes, you've been replaced. Like, come on. But there's there's people out there who wanted the ending of this movie to be different. Because right. the end, because yeah. the ending of this movie is basically Andy going to the prom, and hooking up with Blaine again because Bader kind of split them apart, instead of hooking up with Ducky. And there's people out there who's like, she should have hooked up with Ducky. She should have hooked up with Ducky. I'm like, why would she want to hook up with Ducky? He was a fucking prick to her for the, like the second half of the movie. <laughs> like he was literally a fucking asshole. Like right. he was yeah. the most unlikable cur in the world for like a good chunk of this movie. So I didn't get it, but um. You know, I, I don't regret revisiting this movie because uh, it's still okay for what it is. But out of the Hughes movies, I think this is the one that skews more female than the other ones. You know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah, I feel like the target audience here is more for girls who want to who are who like I'm eccentric, too. I like to design clothes, you know, that kind of stuff. Like because in this movie for the prom, she designs this dress. It's the most hideous fucking dress I've ever seen. <laughs> Like it's this, it's bad. It looks like a fucking tablecloth almost. She's wow. not, she is not pretty in pink at the end of this movie in that dress. <laughs> no matter how much the psychedelic furs would like to convince you otherwise, she <laughs> is not. But um, yeah, for what it is, it's all right. But if you're curious about, like, if you're a younger, younger listener who maybe isn't aware of the impact John Hughes had in the '80s, and you want to check out one of his movies, I'd say go with like you know, 16 candles or weird science or, or even breakfast club. Like I'm not the biggest proponent of breakfast club either, but yeah, definitely, either. but definitely if you want to see like why 
John Hughes was so important to so many people in the 80s. I'd start with those three before you get to Pretty in Pink, to be honest. Yeah, okay. So that's my revisit. All right. Okay, um, yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen that, and I just, yeah, I don't know. I do want to watch Weird Science again one of these days. But 16 Candles and Pretty in Pink, yeah. Well, let me tell you, the, the Arrow release of, of Weird Science is totally worth it. Is it? Two All cuts right. of the movie. Oh, wow. Yeah, cool. So, and, and lots of special features. It's a good version. Nice. All right. Um, well, let's go back into the uh, world of universal horror movies. Um, so the next on the list um, was The Invisible Man Returns from 1940, directed by Austrian director Joe May, um, who... Done a bunch of stuff, but nothing really that is of note to me. Okay, so first of all, this is 1940, and Vincent Price is a star. Like, I actually didn't even realize, like, I saw the name, and then I couldn't recognize his, like, it didn't even have his voice, I guess because he was so young. So just to put into perspective, like, this is like 13 years before House of Wax, Wow. Which is really when he started. But in my brain, I always think of Vincent Price in the Corman movies, which is in the early 60s. And I always think of that as young Vincent Price starting his career. This is 20 years before that. So, yeah, I had no idea that Vincent Price was in a... And he's the top build? He's the Invisible Man. Whoa. Yeah. I had no fucking clue. Like, I had no idea. Yeah, and so wow. it was because I saw his name, but then I didn't see him, and then I'm like, oh, he's the, he's, he's actually, no wonder I don't see him, he's a fucking invisible <laughs> But it didn't sound like Vincent Price, so I didn't, you know, he's got that distinctive voice, but it didn't come through in the movie, so it was very, very strange. So does he actually, like, have, like, screen time when he's not invisible, though? Very, very briefly. Okay. And even that, it's like it's not it's not the Vincent Price we know. Oh, okay. So very very odd. So anyway, if you're a Vincent Price fan, yeah, you might not have known that he was wow. making movies in 1940. So this now, is a, I'm, this is like his fifth movie or something. I'm gonna have to watch this now. Yeah, but I mean, he's such a horror icon, but no one ever talks about the fact that he was in a Universal horror wow. movie. Like, yeah, weird, eh? <laughs> I'm glad that I'm not the only one because I was. Like, oh, am I just stupid? Like, how did I not know this all this time? But nope. No idea. Yeah. So anyway, uh, good old Vincent Price stars. Um, So it's a different premise than the original and a different tone. So the original had, like, the Invisible Man was kind of a mad scientist and kind of got off on being invisible and then was mischievous and kind of evil, like a bad guy. This is the opposite. He's a good guy in this movie. He's a... So he's a dude who was framed for the murder of his brother, um, and he was—he's basically escaped prison and was on the lam. And then um, his friend, who was the brother of the original Invisible Man, so this guy's name's John Griffin. Um, he has the invisibility serum, so he carried on the work of the original Invisible Man. But this is a good guy, and he basically—they decide to make. Um, Jeffrey invisible, Vincent Price's character invisible, so he can elude the cops. Then they start to figure out what happened, like who actually did the murder, and then it becomes Jeffrey trying to like right the wrongs of the murder and 
you know, kind of avenge his brother. Um, so the Invisible Man, although he, you know, it does have the angle of him going men- going crazy with the invisibility serum and becoming more manic and stuff, and that you see all that, and that's good. But he doesn't he doesn't go evil. He just gets a little batty, and you know he does a bit of like he does a bit of messed up stuff. Like at one point when he's trying to get information, he finds like someone that was involved that's drunk, kind of stumbling down the lane. So he just starts fucking with them, like with his invisibility, and like he'll like throw something, and the guy won't know what's going on, and then he'll like tap him on the shoulder. But and then it starts to get a little dark because he ends up like actually kidnapping the guy and like hanging him from a like from a noose. But then like is fucking with him like with his invisibility, so it got a little dark. But it wasn't like the original. Like he's still like you're still with this guy. Um, there's some pretty cool effects with smoke and rain. Um, I think there there were some of those in the, in the original, but uh, uh, I really noticed them in this, this particularly the smoke one. It was pretty cool. Um, it's got uh, Nan Gray, who I talked about in Dracula's Daughter. She was the uh, the young model that Dracula's daughter um, uh, had the kind of infamous lesbian toned sequence with. Um, she was the star of this. She played Jeffrey's wife. She was great. I really liked this actress. Really wish she did more things. She did a few horror movies um, and, and some other stuff and then um, vanished quite quickly. So she's definitely not a name actor, but nice to see her in a leading role. Um, uh, Cedric Hardwick plays uh, the villain Cobb. Um, yeah, but this was this is good. I actually think I liked it a bit better than the original Invisible Man. It was at least on par. I know people love that movie, but um, I don't. I'm not. I'm not completely in a minority here. But it's just. I just like. I like these stories of, you know, righting wrongs and that kind of thing, and being able to use the invisibility to do that. And there was enough like fun stuff in this. Um, and again, like the the pacing, like again, very very quick, very enjoyable. Wasn't bored. Uh, I'm really surprised because like I talked about before with these universal horrors like that original Dracula and that original Frankenstein as classic as they are do feel like they drag a bit but I've been finding like all of these just clip along really well and they hold up super well so yeah again I'm just super excited about the set and I'm getting more excited as I watch each one just because I've never seen them before and they're all pretty good quality I'm still waiting for the downturn but um just like um, Son of Frankenstein, like this, this worked out quite well and uh, very, very enjoyable. So, really like the Invisible Man Returns. Yeah, I have the um, I have the Universal sets too. Like I have the, remember they released the ones on DVD that came with like the busts, the little mini busts. Yeah. With, like Dracula and Frankenstein and uh, Wolfman. Wolfman. and Wolfman. I have those sets, but I did buy the Invisible Man set separately as well. Yeah. So that I'd have all four. So if if Vinny Price is in this, and it sounds like it'll be pretty good, because I agree with you. Like I'd rather see the invisibility being used to you know right the wrongs rather than Kevin Bacon going and raping girls in Halloween. Yeah, like it's always used as negative, right? Yeah. And like it's kind of a fresh take, seeing it as positive. Because yeah, I think the new one it's negative. You're right, yeah. Hollow Man. The yeah. original Invisible Man, like it's always like a kind of a negative use and uh yeah it was cool seeing it this way i mean i was asked like why are you doing this to yourself why are you watching these in order (laughs) right it's because it's the only way i will watch them i mean it's i'm how old now and i've never watched these i always just keep going back to the originals 
So right. I'm really glad I'm forcing myself because I'm definitely finding some ones that I'd return. Like I'd go back to this one before I go back to the original. Right. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So cool. Check it out. Um, so my next one is uh, another continuation on Warner Archive releases because I got to tell you, man, like in the last year, I've really starting to appreciate what those guys are doing because mm-hmm. we're getting so much stuff that is like hard to come by or like just a little bit off the beaten track or, you know, and they're reasonably priced and, and they're usually good quality. And, you know, it gives you an opportunity to see these movies that might not be on streaming or whatever, just like, um, just like sweet hostage. Like that's not going to be streaming anywhere. So this is another one where I was kind of like always being curious about it since it was, since, you know, the eighties never really got around to watching. It was never really like available to watch once VHS kind of phased out. And that's a movie from 1980 called Carney, uh, directed by Robert Kaler. Um, now the reason this was interesting. Yeah. Warner archive. Archive. Um, the reason I've always been curious about this one is because it is, uh, it stars and what is based on a story by Robbie Robertson, who, if you're a music fan, you know, is one of the main proponents of the group, the band, which is actually one of my favorite, you know, musical groups from the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, you know, Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, uh, The Weight, you know, Ophelia, all these classic like rock songs, like folk, folky country rock songs, uh, subject of the last Scorsese's Last Waltz, which I still say is one of the best concert films ever made. Um, so this is him doing something different. And he based this on the fact that when he was in his late in his mid teens, he worked in a traveling carnival. And um, I don't know about you, but traveling carnival stuff has always fascinated me. Like always, mm-hmm. like I've always been curious about it. I, I remember being a kid and always being super excited when you would see the carnival roll into town and start setting up somewhere. Yeah, I would always be like, you'd see them there, you'd see their trailers, and you'd see them start putting stuff up, and you'd be like, holy shit, the carnival's in town, I can't wait to go. Like, yeah. I, like always. Like, there used to be a, um, there used to be a park in the middle of the town I lived, where they had a hill in it, it was called Chinkuzi Park, because they had this hill, this giant hill in it called Chinkuzi Mountain. It wasn't really a mountain, it was just a really tall hill. But it was a it was a garbage pile that had been covered over and made into a recreational hill. Like right. you could ski on it and stuff like that. But then around it, it had, you know, multiple swimming pools. It had a band shell. It had walking paths, all that kind of stuff. But the carnival would come there when I was a kid, like once a year. And they would take up like half the park. And they'd mm-hmm. have, you know, the they'd have the Tilt-A-Whirls. They'd have all the rides. They'd have the games. They'd have the Clydesdales, all that stuff. And if you were lucky, they'd have wrestling. So that's where I saw Jimmy. That's where I saw Jimmy Superfly Snooka live really? back in the wow. day. Yeah. So oh, like, that's awesome. I was always so excited. So I've always been had this fascination with them, and I've always particularly been fascinated in American carnivals because they're I I, I feel they're much different than what we got in Canada. Like mm. like Canadian traveling carnivals didn't have freak shows that I remember. Mm. You know, and, and this film has freak show characters in it. It didn't have burlesque shows, which is mm. also in this movie, like the burlesque shows. So I've, I've always thought that like like a like a, a traveling band, like why would you be willing to just be uprooted 
you're in the all the time, like not have a home, like not have a fixed address. You're just traveling with a group of people town to town to town, like 12, like you stop. It's like 12 months a year. Is it 24 seven? You're traveling with this carnival. And I've always found that super fascinating. Just like I've always found like amusement parks in general, fascinating, like Adventureland or, Mm -hmm. you know, movies like that. It's just something that I've always been like curious about. So I was like, I got to see Carney because I I feel like this is going to be like a legit look at carnivals in some ways because the director, Robert Kaler, the only thing he had really directed before this was 10 years prior in 1970. He had directed a documentary called Derby, which is all about roller derby, which is another thing that fascinates me. Yeah. So I'm like, I've got to see how he does this. So. Basically, this movie opens up with our one of our main characters, played by Gary Busey, putting on his clown makeup. So it's him just sitting in front of the mirror, dabbing on the makeup, putting it on uh, while the music plays. And then it's just early scenes of the carnival. So he's basically a clown who is in the dunk tank. So he's in the dunk tank. They have a microphone set up in front of him. He throws insults at the people who are paying to dunk him. And he acts like a lunatic, like he'll grab the bars and go up and start kicking the bars. And he'll be like, oh, you throw like a girl and all this stuff. Right. So that's going on at the same time. You've got, you know, it's just drifts through the carnival, showing the game, showing the ride, showing the ambience and everything. And I love those scenes. Like I love any movie that does scenes like that, where you just get a feeling for what's going on. And then drifting through this carnival is the character played by Robbie Robertson. And he's kind of like the the shyster shuffler guy like you get the impression he's like the 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 manager of it like because there's an owner but there's he's like the manager guy but he's also like the huckster where he kind of you know tricks people into playing the games or spending more money and stuff or he'll he'll do things to manipulate people to spend more money and he kind of drifts through the carnival doing that so he ends up at you know the the dunk tank with Busey, who's his best friend, who plays, he's called Bozo when he does his clown thing. And, you know, Robertson's hustling. Uh, Busey's being his crazy person. And then into the carnival comes Donna, 18-year-old Donna, played by Jodie Foster. And she's there with, like, her boyfriend, her her football jock boyfriend, played by Craig Sheffer. Is it Craig Sheffer? No, Craig Wasson from Body Double. He's, oh, he, he's the boyfriend, not Craig Sheffer, Craig Wasson. He's the boyfriend, and he has, like, a He's he's one of the guys who gets, you know, manipulated into trying to dunk Bozo, but he's like such a jock, such a jock guy that he just like freaks out, you know, like he just he can't handle losing. So he just acts like a jerk. And Donna's just like, you know, that's enough. I've, I've seen enough of you doing this. But like me, she seems to be drawn to that carnival. So she goes back the next day, you know, sits her like she's there and, you know, Busey comes to her out of makeup and kind of strikes up this conversation kind of friendship with her and she decides she's going to run away from home join mm. up with the carnival and travel with them and then it just kind of becomes this kind of you know she hooks up with Busey um, you know they have this relationship she's living in the trailer where uh, where Busey's character and Robertson's character are also living Robertson's kind of like I don't really want her here like she yeah. kind of irritates me but because you're my friend I'm I'm going to let it go, you know, like stuff like that. And then it's just basically, you know, set pieces of them rolling into new towns, having to deal with 
you know, the local authorities saying what they can and can't do and paying them off so they can do certain things and, you know, showing showing the burlesque shows and showing the freak shows and letting you learn about the characters who are in this carnival, like the carnies and the performers and kind of giving you a, a look at the slice of life stuff that they're doing. And, and that stuff's also really good. Like, I really like that. Like, I just yeah. like the fact that you're, you're learning about these people. And then, um, you know, there's scenes with them, like getting in a fight at a truck stop because they're so cocky and the truck drivers don't like them. And, you know, um, and then it just becomes this kind of like weird love triangle thing because there's mm. all this tension between Busey and Robertson and uh, Foster. Uh, and also she becomes like a dancing girl at the burlesque show, which also doesn't quite fly with, with Busey's character in a way. And, uh, you know, and then it just kind of becomes this, this story about being an extortion story in the finale, which kind of gives the movie a really weird tone. Like it becomes sort of rapey at times and, it becomes mm. kind of exploitive and it kind of feels out of place with the rest of the movie, to be honest with you, because it's basically these guys who come to t- who are they roll into this one town. And these guys are like, just exploit them like we want more money or we're not going to let you play here. And then it becomes like they start to threaten them and the threat becomes escalated throughout the finale. And that stuff's OK, but like the tone shifts, like at times it feels like a horror movie. Oh, in certain moments. And I'm just like, well, I don't really that's not really what I want. So that was a little bit disappointing. And the finale was a little bit abrupt and it didn't really resolve much. But uh, apart from that, I kind of dug this one. Like I I liked I liked the look at the carnivals. I liked meeting the characters. Um, I thought Busey was really good in this. Like the thing about Gary Busey is. He doesn't get as much credit as he deserves, I think, mm-hmm. because people just see him now as like that post motorcycle accident B- Gary Busey, you know, yeah. like the 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 one that that had sl- I think he had slight brain damage from his accident. And now his acting like a little strange at times. And I think people are just picturing him like that, kind of like how people picture modern day Nicolas Cage as being over the top and everything, whereas Nicolas Cage has turned in really good performances in the past. But that's kind of forgotten, right? And I feel that's forgotten with Busey, too, because he's really good in this. Like, he's actually the best thing in this. And, I, you know, I haven't seen the Buddy Holly story, but I've heard he's really excellent in the Buddy Holly story as well. So I just think that people need to give him a little bit more credit than he's getting. Yeah. Um, Foster, again, I think she's probably one of the best actual, like, young actors in the 70s. Like, Mm. she really had a grip on how to give performances even at a young age you know you look at taxi driver you look at little girl who lives down the lane and stuff like that like i think she like it's understandable why she's had such a long career she's like really good in this one too it's just robertson who's kind of the who's kind of the the loose cannon here like he's a musician he's not an actor and you can tell yeah you know he he's he's not very he's not the greatest in this like really he's just a lot of it is just him like kind of blankly staring off into the distance and stuff and smoking cigarettes and trying to act cool so i i didn't really like him that much and i i think this movie could have had could have been a little bit better than it was because of that shift in the last third but mm-hmm. i i'm actually quite glad i've finally seen it because yeah it is tackling a a, a subject that i really am interested in and if anyone has any suggestions for books 
about carnival traveling carnivals and stuff that I might want to read or other movies, I will gladly take them. But uh, I'm glad I saw this and I'm glad Warner Archive put this out in a nice widescreen anamorphic transfer. And I, I don't regret paying the like 10 bucks I paid for it. It's a, it's definitely a interesting look at something that is pretty much non-existent nowadays, I think. Like, I feel like you see them pop up in the mall parking lots once in a while, but it's not like it used to be at all. No, definitely like, not. Like, definitely not. And and I find it interesting that Robert Kaler, the director, all he's made is that documentary about roller derby 10 years prior to this. And then 10 years after this, he made a romantic comedy. So it's kind oh, of really? weird. Yeah, he made three movies 10 years apart. So. Oh, weird. But yeah, I, I would recommend Carney for sure if this is a subject matter that interests you. Because there's a lot of stuff here that is, you know, what I'd imagine it would be really like to be a traveling party. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I think there should be more movies based on this stuff. I mean, the only ones I think of are like Freaks and maybe The Elephant Man, which loosely, but Freaks definitely. Have you seen Freaks? Like the 30s one? Yeah. I've never seen it. Oh, you should check that one out, man. That's a good one. Yeah, definitely. Um, But I've got a few books on it, too. I mean, I also am super fascinated by it all. And uh, at one point, I remember there was this crazy carnival that came to Seattle and uh but it was more like a circus and uh it was almost like a Cirque du Soleil but it was in a mall parking lot and I was I was really fascinated like same thoughts right I'm like who the fuck are these people and like where what do they do like how do they live like I actually thought this would be a great documentary subject actually like following these people around and I know there are there's actually a documentary on on Prime or Netflix or um Tubi called freak show um that they might want to look up um that's about a freak show um and there's also a documentary about the jim rose circus side show if you're not familiar are you familiar with them yeah i've seen that documentary yeah 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 and he did a book too called freak like me um but but the whole um but the whole carney thing you're right in in this time period because jim rose is cool and i really liked him and and watching that but it was different than what you were talking about in this movie. And, uh, yeah, it's definitely ripe for, uh, it's a, it's one of those things that I think there could be a lot of really interesting stories. So I've always wanted to check this out as well. And I don't know what's, what's prevented me from doing so, but, but yeah, cool. So, yeah. Carney, 1980. All right. Uh, okay. Um, we're going to continue on now with the, um, uh, Mill Creek box set. <laughs> Your new <laughs> love. The gift keeps on giving. Um, you would marry but, that box set if you could. I, I, dude, I, what am I, like nine in? Like, this is insane. Something like that. This is the ninth movie out of 200. Okay, so next up we have another Norman J. Warren movie. Okay. <laughs> Why buy the vinegar syndrome discs when you've got the, the Mill Creek box set? Um, this is Satan's Slave from 1976 so this is my I think my third or fourth Norman J. Warren movie now um, where we had I've seen Prey I've seen Terror maybe it's only the third and now this one anyway this is my least favorite of the three um, so this is okay so this is a heavy heavy occult movie like it's a very heavy occult exploitation sexploitation movie um so it opens with a pretty intense like satanic ritual 
Uh, then we're introduced to this character named Catherine, played by Candice, Candice Glendening, um, who had a brief brief run as a bit of a British scream queen. She was also in Pete Walker's Flesh and Blood show. Uh, she's this woman who's um, she's 19. She's going to they're going with her parents to visit Uncle Alexander. Uh, they arrive at Uncle Alexander's, and uh, Catherine gets out of the car, and the car blows up. So her parents die immediately. Uh, this is a pretty shocking opening. I'm like, oh, my God. Um, so then she gets taken in by her uncle and uh, her cousin, um, played by uh, Martin Potter, named Stephen. Uh, Martin Potter, probably best known for uh, being in uh, Fellini's Satyricon. He was a star. And he also was in that uh, Justine movie I reviewed pretty recently with Ku Stark. Uh, but he's a real creep. Like, we always have the kind of creepy, co- like, cousin or, or um, there's always that creepy cousin or brother character, like, yeah. lurking around in these 70s movies sometimes. So this is, this is the creepy um, cousin. So he's, like, trying to get with Catherine, his cousin. Meanwhile, he's also, like, um, hooking up with other women and, like, sadistically murdering them. Uh, so he's, it's kind of a bit of a slasher movie in that way, or almost t- tones of giallo, but I don't want to give this movie too much credit. Uh, but it's got a few murder set pieces that are kind of giallo-esque, like, uh, you know, there's one point where he, like, has a woman in his bed, and he, like starts assaulting her then takes up her clothes and runs a knife down her body and then she tries to run away and then gets killed violently something you'd see in a giallo movie um catherine starts having dreams when she's like able to sleep when she's not trying to get away from Stephen the creep um she has weird dreams about satanic rituals um that are pretty graphic there's um there's one involving a woman who gets you know is being chased by like uh you know, like the, I don't like people in the like early 1900s um, chasing her in their like, I don't know, pilgrim garb or whatever, and you know, get stripped naked and then branded. There's another sequence where our lead is in the dream. She's like laying down and uh, there's a satanic ritual being happening on her. She gets snakes put on her, and then there's like a naked mm-hmm. woman like with a um, like a. Uh, kind of like this rod that gets shoved into like places that it probably shouldn't be shoved into. Um, there's some eyeball violence. There's premonitions. Um, but you know, it's just not after the after prey and terror, which I felt like were both really well done and kind of bananas. This one just felt like kind of like ritual to ritual to dream sequence to ritual to murder sequence, but nothing really going on like it just wasn't very exciting to me like i just it nothing was crazy enough or original enough for me to take notice let me put it that way um i mean i think the the ritual stuff was pretty heavy duty ritual like with goat's heads and and uh that kind of thing um probably more than i've seen in satanic movies um so i think if you're into like satanic movies this is probably a pretty pretty good one um but i just i just was expecting a little more originality i wanted to uh, see another levitating car like in terror or like prey just the way that the whole the whole thing was set up and just how weird it was with like kind of the like wolf dude or whatever he was um wolf alien guy like it just those other premises were just kind of crazy and i didn't find this i just felt this was a little more run-of-the-mill 
Um, I think if you're into like sleazy occult movies, you'll like this. Um, like if you're, um, um, but I, I'm not. <laughs> um, there was there was a few good gore gags. Um, it was written by David McGillivray, who did uh, wrote uh, Schizo, and also wrote Terror and Frightmare. Um, so he's had done a few things. It was starring Michael Go, who um, most people will know as know as Alfred in the '90s Batman movies. Um, he plays the uncle. Um, but I I I would hope most people wouldn't start with this if they're getting introduced to Norman J. Warren. Like, I think if I this was my first movie of his, I probably would have been like, uh. Like, it's it's definitely has a lot more sleaze, a lot more nudity than I was expecting. So I think from that angle, if you're, like, this was really pushing the envelope, because British movies of this time period, would, there was the whole thing going on um, um, where you, they couldn't do that in Britain, the video, video nasties. So it was pretty daring to be making movies like this um, and the ones that Pete Walker was making. So I guess from that perspective, it was it was kind of cool or whatever. But um, just overall, it just didn't have that fun fun stuff going on. I know a lot of people really love this one, just not really for me. And I've just never really been into Satan movies either. Um, have you? Have you seen this one? I haven't seen it. But I like you, I'm not really into Satanist movies. Like, you know, I the only one I can think of that I actually like is probably Race with the Devil. Yeah. But that but that's mostly because that's more of a car chase exploitation movie than an actual satanic ritual type movie. That's probably yeah. why I just, yeah, I like, just I just find people in robes and daggers being kinda of boring. <laughs> yeah, like I just found like the other one in the other Satan movie in this set. I can't remember what it was called. I did it a few episodes ago, but I really liked it. It was a black and white one with, um, I think that was, there was another, ba- I think that one had Commissioner Gordon in it from the original Batman series, and he was the leader of the Satan group. And that one was really cool, and it was really low-key and really low-budget, and I enjoyed that one. But this one, I don't know, I just, something about, like, ritual sequences just kind of bore me, I guess. But, yeah, don't don't make this your starting point for Norman J. Warren. It was, I was a little disappointed, but... I kind of get the appeal with the, if you're into exploitation and sexy stuff and goat heads and sacrifices, but it's not really my jam. So that's Take the Sleep. No, it wasn't Fair terrible, enough. though. It wasn't terrible. Still still a good addition to this set. Um, and the print was, again, scope. Like, I'm just constantly shocked by that. But it was a little dark. I would imagine some of the other releases from, uh, I think, Vinegar Syndrome put it out. And I think someone else put it out as well. I think, indicator, I think, I think. indicator and, and I think oh indicator put out the box set and I think Anchor Bay also put this out on DVD back in the day so one of those prints is probably a little better than this one but anyway there you go Satan Slave. All right, well let's let's go into another area that I'm always fascinated by apart from carnivals is I'm I'm fascinated in documentaries about disasters basically like not like. Like, not like nature disasters, just physical disasters, like people who are disasters, like who are who have ambition, but just either do not have the talent, the wherewithal or the, you know, location for that for them to succeed. Uh, it's like a movie like American movie or, you know, the I am Thor or uh Mm. This or the Anvil's movie, the story of Anvil. It's it's kind of like those movies. I find those to be inherently appealing and fascinating. So that's why I picked up 
this movie. It's a documentary that was filmed from 2006 to 2008, initially released in 2010, but finally got a, an official release in 2014 from uh, Wild Eye Releasing. It's a movie called Rebel Scum, directed by Video Rahim. Uh, what this is is it's a uh, it's one of those movies. It's it's what this reminded me of mostly was uh, Hated, the Gigi Allen story that was directed yeah. by Todd Phillips, which makes sense because there is a brief moment in this that does focus on Gigi Allen and the fact that this band did open for Gigi Allen at one time. So uh, this is set in Tennessee, and it it's basically about this guy called Christopher Scum is what he calls himself. And he's the lead singer of this punk band that's called the Dirty Works. And they, um, how this movie opens is it opens with them showing up at his hotel room and him answering the door. And he just, you know, he just seems out of it. Like, he just seems like he's either high or drunk or, you know, something's going on with him. He's slurring his speech. He's stumbling around. He's very confrontational and violent and, like... He sets his fucking hair on fire to try and make a point. And they're like, dude, if you do that, we're going to leave. Like, we're going to stop filming you if you don't start stop setting your hair on fire. So you're like, okay, well, we're introduced to Christopher Scum and there's definitely something wrong with him. And then it kind of flashes back to two years prior, which is when the filmmakers decided to start following this punk band around for two years. And it kind of follows them from, you know, when they first meet them to their subsequent failures i'm gonna say because there's not really any successes in this movie let's put it that way it's one of those movies um the problem is like the dirty works are a really shitty punk band and they're you know their music is awful um their lyrical content is pretty bad like they have a song called fight where the lyrics are just fight 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 for your right doesn't matter if you're black or white you know just like like (laughs) bad lyric writing and and Christopher Scum has this thing where he's got brass knuckles duct taped to his microphone. And before he starts singing, he bashes himself in the head repeatedly with these brass knuckles so that he can, you know, draw blood. Which, you know, we know Iggy Pop did this. We know Gigi Allen did stuff like this. But it's just so low scale and so like ghetto in a way because they're playing in places where they're playing to like three audience members. You know, right. and he's do and he's doing this. Like, even if you're, even if you're dedicated to your craft as a musician, that you don't care if the club has nobody in it, I wouldn't put myself in physical harm just because. Yeah. You know, like, you know, that's not that's got fuck all to do with your art. That's just got to do. That's a cry for attention, if you ask me. Like, really, like punching yourself in the head with with brass knuckles. And we know it is because. Christopher Scum is a fucking train wreck. Like, you know, we find out that he's like, you know, he's on methadone because he's trying to kick drugs. But methadone is also like heavy dose painkiller. Him and his girlfriend are both on methadone. Uh, They both like to uh, run around with guns all the time, like handguns. Um, He's always trying to act tough, but obviously he's got mental issues. And, you know, he's got like very deep seated mental issues. Um, he's got scars on himself. He's, he, he's got a lot of past, like he, he, his, his youth wasn't very good. He's got a lot of issues with the Bible belt that's around there. He's got a lot of issues with the fact that his band's not doing well. And then it just kind of, it kind of like, you know, they introduce his girlfriend at one point and she states right on camera that 
ever since she was six years old, she's wanted to shoot drugs because she thought it looked cool. You know, and, and it's just like it's just a train wreck. And, you know, and it just kind of introduces you to the rest of the bandmates. You know, there's like the one younger guitar player who, you know, he can only play four chords. But and they say, he, you know, at least he he likes playing guitar in that. But he's also like a fucking raging alcoholic who, you know, doesn't really care about music or whatever. And then the hippie type bass player and then the. The drummer, who's this uh, African American guy who started as a jazz drummer and now like plays in this band for some reason, and then his other friends who are in bands are like heroin addicts and shit, and it's just like this really just this hodgepodge, this melting pot of Tennessee bands who fucking are disasters, like disasters, dude. And and this Christopher Scum guy's like kind of in the middle of this, and it's just like. This is less of a music documentary than it is just an image of hopelessness. Let's be hun- like, yeah. like this. These people are hopeless. Like they're not going anywhere. They're spinning their wheels. Um, sure, Christopher Scum has ambitions, but the way he's trying to make those ambitions a reality is just not healthy and just not, you know, feasible or, you know, like. Unlike the story of Anvil or a movie like that where you – or even American movie in a way where you kind of want your protagonist to succeed, in this movie you're kind of like, I don't really want you to succeed because I feel like it's going to just cause more issues for you. You're already a fucking train wreck. I don't think having some minor success is really going to change things for you. I think you're locked into who you are and that you're a methadone addict and that you have – depression issues and you have violence issues i don't think getting like a handful of people who like your music and buy your cds and come to your shows is going to help with that like i really don't yeah you know so like that's that's something so like in that way this documentary is a really tragic portrait of this guy like and then you know and then when you find out that like a year after they filmed the like in 2015 so like seven years after they filmed this he was in this terrible car accident where his girlfriend died and he was burnt and that's the opening stanza to this like there's a there's a text thing at the beginning saying that you're like fuck man what am i what are we in for here you know like it's very yeah. it's a like it's kind of like a wallow in misery in a way with and it, in some ways it does get a little tiring seeing the abuse these band members do to each other and them being drunk all the time and pointing guns at everybody and, and playing bad music but at the same time you're just kind of like you can't stop watching this like you really can't like it's yeah. just like you're just like you know these this is just how does this happen like how do people get to this point and you know everyone needs an artistic outlet sure but you're just like I don't quite understand what they're going for here it's it's just I almost wish it was kind of more of a music doc, to be honest, because I was depressed by the end of this a little bit. Right. I mean, I really was. I mean, sure, there was a thing near the end where they kind of gave Christopher Scum a little bit of redemption where, you know, he finally got out to go into a recording studio and make an album. And, you know, they finally had a handful of fans and stuff. And you're like, yeah, great. He has that little bit of redemption. But at the end of the day, he's still really messed up. So, yeah. You know, in that way, it's a very compelling portrait of a damaged person, you know, and, yeah. and, and and that's the kind of stuff that is kind of interesting to me, like documentaries that don't play it safe and don't have happy endings and and do show you a darker side of society, because like I 
I've been pretty lucky in my life where I've avoided stuff like this. You know, I'm a, I'm a very well-grounded person, I feel, and don't really have these issues. So to, to see that and kind of like, you know, it's hard to relate to in a way, but it's just like, it also makes you feel like um, you should be a little bit more receptive to people around you and be a little bit more of a, a better person to people around you because you never know what people are going through in a way. I feel like that's the main thing I'm getting from these, to be honest. So yeah. Very, very interesting, but very um, just beware going in that it's not going to be the most fun time in the world. And I know there's going to be people out there who who watch this because they they they'll think it's funny. And uh, if you're doing that, mm. it's uh, you're watching it for the wrong reason. So, yeah, uh, that's Rebel Scum from 2014. All right. Well, why don't <laughs> I talk about a documentary as well? OK. Um, sort, sort of similar in some ways. Um, it's a movie called Zoo from uh, 2007. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Directed by Robinson DeVore. So Chris was just talking about, um, you know, being fascinated with people like um, that are in dark places in society that maybe, uh, you know, you know, you never know what people are doing. You never know what, what people are up to. <laughs> um, so this is a story about a guy, a Boeing engineer in uh, Washington State, right near here in Vancouver. It's actually just down in Washington State. I was actually just down in the town that this occurred in, seeing the Misfits and the Damned last year. Um, and I was shocked to find that it was in the same town as Tacoma? where the story was. Uh, in Umclaw. Washington. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, this is um, based on the on the tale of a guy who um, a group of people called zoophiles who enjoyed getting together at parties, going out to the stable, and then getting fucked in the ass by a horse. I don't really know how else to put it. <laughs> well, but no. That's what these guys. That's what these guys did. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've always been kind of fascinated by this story. It's pretty fucked up, um, um, and I've, you know, I've always thought it was horrible. Like, um, you know, from from the like it's animal abuse, right? So, but I've always kind of wondered like what happened. Like I've heard about the story, but I didn't really know about the story. So I was like, oh great, there's a documentary about it. I'll check it out. Okay, so the problem here is that this documentary um, is trying to be super cinematic. So everything is like kind of with a dreamlike quality. Um, it it's not a talking heads thing, which sometimes is a good thing. But I don't mind talking heads stuff because I'm getting the story. I'm getting the story. Like in your movie that you watch, you're getting footage of the band. You're probably getting some interviews. So you're kind of seeing what's going on. You're not getting that in this. They don't really talk to anyone that was involved. Um, aside from, a, there's a few people that they do talk to. But overall, it's actors playing the parts. But then not really showing what happened. So let me put it this way. I really felt that they were coming at this with a uh, sympathetic view towards the zoophiles. So 
I don't agree. Um, oh. And I also, I felt like it was almost trying to say, like, it was. I think the message they were trying to do was, everyone's got their weird thing. We shouldn't be judging them, even if they want to have sex with horses. So, so yeah. they're, the documentarians are trying to justify bestiality and animal abuse. Yeah, like, I mean, okay, so it opens and you definitely, like, the way it's shot, like, you, like I said, it's kind of dreamy, almost nightmarish. It's very, very slow. And you almost feel like, yeah, like, you, you know there's like there's a sense of dread. But, I mean, it's because you know. you When you're fucking putting this thing on, you know what it's about. You know it's not going to a good place. You know someone's going to die because they were, a horse rammed them too hard. Like, that's yeah. how the guy died. Yeah. But then we're, you know, introduced to all these characters. We're introduced to, like, how, why they got involved, you know, and, and we're shown, like, we're, they're played by actors, and we're showing them like going together because they're they're all like they all had this problem and they all they were all into this thing but they didn't know how to deal with it so the internet provided them with a way where they could come together then they all like you know came together at this farmhouse so they could you know explore their their you know they had a a sense of community for for their obsession with with horses and um yeah, like I felt like it was almost like some of the reviews I've read of this, which I feel are super misguided, is they're calling this movie beautiful. What? Like I'm like, I'm like no, <laughs> like that's not what this should be. Now I I shouldn't I I, I don't want to judge like it's it did mess me up a little bit because I'm like, should I be such a dick about this? Like, like maybe I should be more with the documentary and more understanding. But at the end of the day. In my opinion, the horse didn't have any choice here. These guys mm-hmm. trained the horse to have sex with them anally. Mm-hmm. Like, they taught the horse how to do that. That's not cool. No. <laughs> but then you got people going, well, is it cool to have, like, that we eat animals? Or is it cool to, like, train a dog to, like, do tricks? <laughs> like, this is, like, a whole other level. So it's very controversial, obviously. But the way it's portrayed in the movie is not controversial, if that makes sense. Like, I think this should have been... Yeah, like, I felt it was very, very heavy on the side of them. It didn't want to exploit them at all. But I'm kind of like, if you're going to make a documentary about this, you, you should exploit everyone. Like, that's kind of the point of making the documentary is to show the story. Not to try and convince me that the subject matter should be going a certain way. And this is a problem I have with a lot of documentaries, right? They're very, very biased, many of them, and I felt like this one was very biased. So I don't like Michael Moore. I find he's so biased, it loses me. Same with Morgan Spurlock. He's entertaining. Morgan Spurlock, super entertaining, but biased. He's trying to convince you of what he's trying to convince you, right? And I just, I would rather it be a little bit more... And it's hard. It's Like, I thought... Um, um, Blackfish did a really good job of like not. We know that that's bad, but I felt like it it had it did a good job of not preaching to me. This I felt was preaching to me in a in a cinematic way. I just did air quotes. Um, you know, I I, <laughs> I mean, there's was points in this where I did laugh out loud. I mean, there was one point where one of the um one of the people who was coming to rescue the horses at the end, you know, was describing how when she was leading the horse away, 
another uh, like Shetland pony or something ran over and started giving the horse a blowjob. <laughs> that made me laugh out loud because I just couldn't picture it. But I mean, this is a horrifying story, and I don't. But I don't think it should be justified. Like it almost, it almost made it like it's it's supposed to be okay or something, and it's not. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I guess it's an interesting take, um, just not one that I agree with. And I and I and I never I didn't I never felt like I really understood why they did this. I never really understood what even happened, like what the incident was. I don't didn't really get what happened afterwards. Um, like there was a lot of a, few, a number of court cases afterwards. Um, didn't really understand what happened there. I didn't really get what led them to get into this in the first place. So I just kind of left with more questions than I had going in. And I feel like with a documentary, documentary, I should at least be learning something. I didn't feel like that at all. So, yeah, I mean, this is a definitely a one and done. Like, and yeah, not a recommend at all. But again, I was reading reviews and like apparently this did really well at Sundance and people were calling it beautiful in the way that they treated the subject matter and the subjects. And I'm like, no, beautiful is not a word I would use for this movie. And, um, yeah, just, I don't know. Stupid. Yeah, I, I know I know about this one, but I have no desire to see it just because of the subject matter. <laughs> to be well, and I, I mean, I've got, got to say, you got to give the, the guy's got balls for making a movie about this, but I just, you know, it's almost like he started making it and then, and then got, like, um, convinced by the subjects that it was okay just a different way of experiencing yeah. love or whatever right and and i don't buy it like i still i'm still trying to understand how how that like how did that how does how does how does it fit in there like i just sort of <laughs> like i don't understand like i'm like how does that work like yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and how do you get pleasure out of that and like how did the guy die like even that like it doesn't really show you in the movie like i have to read about it online to really figure out what happened Right. right. Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's a fucked up documentary, and it's again about damaged people and kind of a train wreck. That's what this is, but um, I think it's presented in a very different way and not in a way I like. Yeah. I didn't want to be this to be cinematic. I wanted to kind of see what, like, get a get a glimpse as to what you wanted. Facts, not art. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Sue from 2007. Oh boy. Two two pleasant films in a row. Um, I just want to one thing I forgot to mention about Rebel Scum. There is a pretty hilarious scene in it where one of the bands who who had who had uh, started taking them on as their opening band realized the the guy from the band is like I realized that ever since they've been opening for us we have no audience anymore. <laughs> I just thought that was pretty funny. Um, yeah. So I'm gonna do another revisit. Uh, this is a movie that I saw on 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 cable TV in the mid '80s, probably. I hadn't seen it since. I managed to get the the uh, DVD for fairly cheap, and it's a movie called Doctor Detroit from 1983, starring Dan Aykroyd. Uh, this is another one of your early '80s pimp comedies, much like Night Shift and things like that, where there was a big thing in the '80s about everyday guys becoming pimp-like characters and Looking back at it now, I don't quite understand what the appeal of pimps in 80s comedies was, but I'm just going to go with it anyway because it can be amusing at times. Um, so this opens with a really great Devo song, which is uh, 
you know, on the soundtrack and his theme towards the movie as Aykroyd is power walking through New York City or actually it's Chicago, I believe he's power walking through Chicago and he's got his glasses on and he's looking at his clock and he's like really fit. And then, uh, you know, this limo drives by him and the window rolls down and it's Howard Hessman from WKRP and a bunch of hot girls. And he and they're looking at him and they're like, oh, look at look at his legs. He's such a stud. Look at this guy. And they're kind of poking fun of him and then they drive off uh, from there. We kind of learn that Hessman is a pimp and that he owes some money to a, a very large kind of imposing woman who is called Mom, as everyone calls her, who runs a li- the limo service and is also kind of like in the pimping business as well. But he owes money to her, but he spent the money just on frivolous things and he's worried that he she's going to kill him. So he decides to make up this fake partner in the middle of a meeting who he calls Dr. Detroit, who he says is a badass who will kill you and that you better watch out, mom. You're going to be in trouble. Um, Of course, there is no Dr. Detroit that exists. And, you know, eventually uh, Ackroyd's Clifford's, he plays Clifford Skid Row. He shows up at the same restaurant as Hessman. And his girls, uh, one of his girls is played by Fran Drescher, by the way, if, if you, uh, depending on how you feel about her. Um, but uh, sh- she shows up at the same restaurant as them and they're like, hey, isn't that that guy that we we saw running? You know, that guy? And Hesman's like, perfect. This guy is a perfect target to pretend to be Dr. Detroit so that, you know, I can get the heat off of me from mom and I can, you know, take off and leave him with the shit and, you know, mm-hmm. keep all the money I owe. So basically, that's what he does. They take him out. They get him drunk. They uh, they ply him with alcohol, drugs, and girls. Uh, take him to the hotel room. Make him snort cocaine. Make him drink. Get him in the hot tub with the with the with the uh, prostitutes, and then uh, convince him to pretend to be Doctor Detroit. Hesman fucks off and leaves him to look after the girls, much like what happens in Night Shift in a way, where uh, Keaton and Henry Winkler have to look after strippers. Um, but it's, it's prostitutes. Prostitutes. Prost, pro, sorry, prostitutes, not strippers. Um, so you know, it's it's a pretty funny like setup because it's like he's just this nerdy guy who's like a college professor and is he's hoity-toity and he's very like oh science and you know I like to read books and his parents are like that his dad's the dean of the of the university and he's like oh my son is great and everything and then he gets into this world of you know, pimping and, and, you know, drugs and alcohol and stuff. And, you know, and uh, eventually he has to take on the persona of the title character, Dr. Detroit, which is this ridiculous getup where he wears like a fright wig and he gives himself this limp and he has a, he has like a knight's gauntlet for one of his hands. And he walks around talking like this, I'm Dr. Detroit. Kind of like that. Like, come on, mom, will you want to fight me? You know, stuff like that. Like he just yeah. puts on this persona. And I actually kind of had fun with this whole thing. Like, I'm like, this is ridiculous, but whatever. It's a fucking early eighties comedy. I mean, come on. I got to put my brain in check a little bit at the beginning of this. Cause I know what I'm getting into. I'm not going to get upset that it's probably problematic these days. I used air quotes on problematic, by the way. Um, but yeah, it, it, Aykroyd's pretty fun in this. Like this is before he, this is kind of after he did trading. Same year he did trading places and stuff. So you know he was still kind of at his peak in a way. Um, Hessman, I always like to see him show up and stuff. Like I said, he was in Tarantulas, the Deadly Cargo, which I talked about recently. Um, yeah. 
TK Carter is in this. He's he's kind of like this guy who pops up in like various comedies in the 80s. He was in some really bad movie called He's My Girl, which had him cross-dressing. So Josh will love that movie. Oh, um, but he plays like the limo driver and he's a lot of fun. He's like this. He's got that like this sarcastic like lip to him and he's also got that jive because he's a black guy he's like yo man what the what, motherfucker you know that kind of stuff he does all yeah. that stuff uh the girls are pretty fun even fran drescher i'm not a big fran drescher fan but you know i like her in spinal tap and i think she's pretty good in this too and uh you know it's just Ackroyd getting a chance to go over the top and play various characters which i know you don't really like but he does play one or two various characters in this and you know there's a weird dream sequence in this movie that shows up where he's having a nightmare where his parents are being upset at him being a, a pimp and stuff in the middle of this dinner party that goes off the rails. And, you know, there's a set piece where uh, uh, he has to cater a campus party and he can't find caters because he forgot about it. And all the all the prostitutes band together to cater the party for him. Mm. And, you know, that's kind of funny. And then it ends with this. um it ends with this like finale that's set at this alumni dinner where they're at this hotel and in one room there's like a university alumni dinner, but in the other room there's the players' ball, which is basically a gathering of all the pimps to crown the head pimp, where Doctor Detroit is getting the award. So it's Dakroyd having to run back and forth between each <laughs> each dinner changing costumes, you know. Right. So that's it's pretty that, good. Yeah. So it's that kind of stuff going on. And, you know, it's just that just craziness going on. James Brown shows up to sing the song Dr. Detroit. Um, memorable dance number and song. And then I remember, like, the main thing I remember from this is when they're all at the player's ball. When Ackroyd's in the other room at, with all the college people, all the all the people at the pimp party are going, Dr. Ooh, ooh, Dr. Detroit. <laughs> I remember that stuff. And I'm like, yeah. And then it's just like... Um, you know, it's just mom shows up and, you know, adds thing where Dr. Detroit has to fight mom, but then he has to keep a secret from his parents that he's Dr. Detroit and so on and so forth. But it's a fun movie. Like, I, I was quite entertained by it. I I put my brain in check. I, I, I thought Aykroyd did good. I thought the girls were fun. I thought T.K. Carter was fun. Like, there's a scene in this where, um, where Hassman's character coaxes Carter to beat him up. Like, he's like, I need, I need you to punch me because i got to go to mom and show her that dr detroit's a badass like he hit me and mm. he's like i'm not gonna hit you man i can't do that you're my boss so, you know i'm not gonna do that and hesman's like yo man he's Hesman's like hey hey my grandfather owned your grandfather and does all these like stuff like that to make him hit him i thought that was kind of funny to admit i mean obviously that kind of joke doesn't fly in this day and age but i thought it was kind of funny um and I thought that Kate Murtaugh, who plays mom, is a pretty good villain for when she shows up. She kind of reminds me of, like, Anne Ramsey and, like, Throw Mama from the Train and stuff. Right. Or, like, you know, just that kind of, like, homely-looking, overweight lady who's just, like, shows up and is, like, imposing and, and mean. That's yeah. kind of what Kate Murtaugh does in this. So I thought it was quite fun. I, I'm definitely keeping the DVD, and I'll watch it again in the future. And it has aged... It's it's a little dated, but it's still I feel like I enjoyed it just as much as when I was younger. Um, directed by Michael Pressman, who has directed a bunch of movies that I forgot that I forgot he directed. He made Bad News Bears and Breaking Training, which mm. I've talked about on the show. He directed Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret <laughs> of the Ooze. 
and he directed some kind of hero with Richard Pryor from the 1982, which I've always wanted to see but haven't got around to. And he also directed a 1979 movie called Boulevard Nights, which is a kind of a Latino L.A. gang type movie that Warner Archive has put out that I'm very interested in checking out now. So, yeah, Dr. Detroit's a lot of fun. So if you can grab it for cheap, give it a look. And nice. it also, especially if you like, like Dan Aykroyd. And plus, it's an early appearance of uh, his future wife, Donna Dixon, looking hot as ever. So how can you go wrong? Yeah, it's never a bad thing. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, I went into the uh, recent Scream Factory uh, realm um, with a movie that I don't remember if I liked or not, so I decided to pick it. I actually got it for my birthday, um, and that's April Fool's Day from 1986. Oh, no, I do not like this movie. <laughs> Direct, directed by Fred Walton, who did uh, When a Stranger Calls and its sequel, among other things. Um, hmm. Um, so I'm just trying to figure out how to talk about this without really ruining it. Um, so Deborah Foreman, who we both like, um, mm-hmm. stars as Muffy, um, a woman who's invited a bunch of her friends to come to her um, uh, house that's over on uh, this on, a, on an island that you have to go to a ferry to. So clearly, I realized this was shot in BC and mm-hmm. shot, over, shot over in Victoria on Vancouver Island. Um, so she invites her friends uh, to this this um, gathering at her house. Um, they're all going. It's on April Fool's Day. Um, along the way, um, um, they're on the ferry, and there's a horrible accident that happens on the ferry, which kind of sets a, a tone for an 80s slasher movie. Um so this horrible accident happens and then the rest of the friend the friends all get over to the house and um as the the weekend's going on you're just finding they're slowly getting picked off slasher style throughout the uh throughout the movie and uh yeah it's it's kind of your typical 80s slasher movie um you know it's got all the usual suspects we've got the like super obnoxious character um Arch, played by uh, Thomas F. Wilson, who was Biff in the Back to the Future movies. Um, we've got Chaz, the cool guy, played by Clayton Rohner, who was in just one of the guys. We've got the prude, Nan, uh, played by Leah Pinsent. We've got Kit, the kind of like girl you want to like hang out with, played by Amy Steele from uh, Friday the 13th 2. Her boyfriend Rob, played by Kendall Lant. Um, we've got the preppy guy. We've got an obnoxious girl, um, and we've also got um, kind of a nerdy guy named Skip, played by Griffin O'Neill, um, son of Ryan O'Neill, um, who had a pretty crazy life. Um, I don't know if you know much about this guy, but he ended up killing Martin uh, or Francis Ford Coppola's son the year after this movie was made. In a boating accident, ironically, uh, and then went on to a life of drugs and crime, and uh, ended up becoming quite estranged from Ryan O'Neill. Told told the press that his uh, he was introduced to cocaine at the age of nine. That Ryan O'Neill uh, forced him to do coke. Okay, so um, yeah, Ryan O'Neill's son, um, yeah, in, in probably one of his only only roles. I know he did a few other things, but. Uh, yeah, what a crazy life that that kid had. Anyway, um, 
this um, I remember this not liking this very much when I was younger because this is right in the middle of the whole slasher movie movie uh, phase and this is might might be not be might be why you didn't like it. I mean, we were used to getting um, a lot of a lot of gore. We were getting a lot of, a lot of interesting kills. We were used to getting like skin, um, and none of that happens in this movie. It, it felt very PG thirteen. I can't remember if it was rated R or not, yeah, but um, all the all the kills were kind of off screen. Um, so yeah, I can see why this didn't. I don't think it did well either. And, uh, yeah, a lot of people don't have good memories of this just because we were used to the Friday the 13th and Halloween and Slumber Party Massacre and all those movies. And uh, this one just felt kind of saccharine compared to the other ones. Um, now, on a revisit, um, I kind of liked it. I mean, I, I liked Deborah Fordman. Um, I liked lo- the location. Um, I kind of enjoyed all the characters. And, um, yeah, I, I certainly didn't dislike it as much as I did when I was younger. I thought it was an odd choice for Scream Factory, but it is also one that's um, um, yeah, it's just kind of one that has always stuck with me. I mean, I always love the cover. I think it's because mm-hmm. I really had a really great VHS cover with yeah, the, the cover's with great. The, the noose. Um, and I like the fact that it was filmed locally, but um, um, yeah, looking at it now without all those expectations, kind of enjoyed it. I'm I mean, thought it was a strange choice for Scream Factory to put out. Um, kind of wish they had done a little bit more with it. I mean, there's kind of a legendary alternate ending to this movie that made it a lot darker than it is. And uh, I know it exists. Um, I'm surprised that they didn't include that. Um, I also kind of wish they had done a commentary track just to get a little more insight into that. Uh, there are some there are some interviews with some of the cast members. Um, you know, Deborah Foreman is missing from those which is also a bit of a miss so um odd odd things here like i just i i don't know i didn't i didn't hate this though i mean i think if you had bad memories of it like you seem to um it might be worth a relook i mean it looks good um but yeah if you're looking for if you're looking for a typical slasher with the gore and the kills and the skin none of that's in this i think i've actually seen this in the last five or six years and i didn't like it still Really, eh? Yeah, I thought I found it was kind of boring, to be honest. So I, you know, like I just I didn't love it. I just didn't remember. I didn't remember the whole. I didn't remember the movie. Yeah. So I think I think once you've kind of seen it, if you remember it, it's probably not really worth a look again. But if it's been so long, like thirty years, <laughs> um, is it that long? Yeah, yeah, 34 I years. 34 years. Yeah, I haven't seen this since it came out, so I don't have any memory of it. Yeah. So like, from that perspective, it was. I thought it was pretty fun. But if I saw saw it five years ago, or ten years ago, and remembered it quite clearly, I don't think I'd go back to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to revisit this anytime soon. But well, like I, I, I find it interesting that it was produced by Frank Mancuso, who was doing the Friday the Thirteenth movies at the same time. Mm, you know, true. because it is quite different from the Friday the Thirteenth movies in some ways, and I mean, and I do, I do respect what they were trying to do with mm-hmm. this movie in some ways, but I just, you're probably right. This isn't what I wanted. I think. Yeah, I think that's the main reason. It, it definitely didn't. wasn't like it was going for a certain demographic, but not delivering the things that that demographic was yeah. expecting. Not that you always should, but. 
I think at least you should do some of them. <laughs> like, well, especially like, when you're putting on the artwork that it's from the producer of Friday the 13th series. Yeah, like there really wasn't even one good kill in this. And I mean, you had an actress from Friday the 13th Part 2. Mm. Um, but you also had Deborah Foreman. Like, I, 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 yeah, I, I, I don't like her in roles like this, I don't think. I like her seeing, I like her in Valley Girl, and, and that's kind of what I want to end my show for. That's what oh, I yeah. want from Deborah Foreman. But, you know, it's good for her to try something different. Uh, I know she fought hard to get the role. Um, I mean, it's okay. It's okay for what it is. I I, I enjoyed it for what it was, but I, I had no memory at all. But, yeah, that's April Fool's Day from Scream Factory. Well, <laughs> I'm going to do another... Let's do another revisit to an 80s comedy. But uh, unlike Dr. Detroit, I didn't like this movie at the time. And upon this rewatch, I still do not like this movie. It's a movie I know you like. And I know it's a movie that my girlfriend likes because she's the one who made me watch it. It's a 1984 film called Blame It on Rio, directed by Stanley Donnan. Hold on. I like one part of that movie. Okay, okay. You like Michelle um, Johnson. Yes. Okay, well, we'll talk about this. Um, So... (laughs) The thing that blows my mind about fucking Blame It on Rio, first off, is the director. Okay? Director is Stanley Donnan. This is a guy who directed one of my favorite movies, top ten favorite movies of all time, Singing in the Rain. But he also directed Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. He did all these classic, classic films. He also directed Saturn 3, so hey. But um, (laughs) but, uh, it's just a weird, it's his last theatrical film, and it's so fucking weird that he made this. Because I think he was probably in his eight, 70s or 80s when he made this. And when you look at, think of it that way and you think of the story of this movie, it's kind of, yeah. Um, this movie's a fucking creep fest, like, from the get-go. Like, this is, <laughs> this is like another one of those older man, younger girl type movies. But yeah. it's in such bad taste. <laughs> like, it really is. Like, I think even in 1984, this was in bad taste. And you know that it was hard to be in bad taste in the mid eighties. Like let's, let's, you know, things weren't quite as uh, unacceptable back then, I guess. Um, so this stars Michael Caine and Joseph Bologna, who are two buddies and coworkers who, you know, have, are going through various things like, you know, Bologna's going through a divorce. Michael Caine's not having a very good uh, relationship with his wife played by Valerie Harper. And they decide that they're going to go on vacation off to Rio de Janeiro. And, um, you know, they're like, we need a vacation. Let's go to Rio. And, you know, they bring along with them their their college-age daughters, their 17-, 18-year-old daughters, played by uh, Michelle Johnson and Demi Moore. And, um, you know, they, they go to Rio, and, you know, things get off on a bad start because Kane's wife's like, you're going to Rio I'm going to this other resort because I don't want to be near you. You know, like it's kind of like we're going on separate vacations because right now I can't stand to be around you kind of. Right. So, you know, they get to Rio. There's some nice scenery going on, you know, the beaches and, you know, the tropical plant tropics and the birds and everything like it's a, a nice, nice scenery. But then I'm like. Who really thought this was a good idea once we get into the actual meat of this movie? Like, the meat of this movie is basically that <laughs> Kane's character, you know, goes, you know, he's he's cruising around Rio, 
Michelle Johnson, who plays Joseph Blona's 18-year-old daughter, has always had a crush on Kane, and because they're in Rio, they decide to have sex with each other and have kind of a very inappropriate affair, which becomes this thing where all the jokes are about them trying to cover it up for the rest of the movie so that no one can find out that Michael Caine's character, who's 43 in the movie but was 51 when this was filmed, has just had sex with his best friend's daughter, who is 25 years younger than him. And this is done for jokes. So who looked at this and thought it was a good idea? Who read the script and was like, I'm in? Like, seriously, who? (laughs) Like, Michael Caine's like, I'm in, but I'm in anything because I take paychecks. <laughs> but like, you know, that, at that point, for sure. Well, yeah, because this is like, well, this is before Jaws Revenge. Everyone says that Jaws the Revenge is like Michael Caine's big. I don't give a fuck. I'm taking a paycheck movie. No, his big. I don't give a fuck. I'm taking a paycheck movie before that is blame it on Rio. You know, like, like, let's come on. He's probably like, what? I get to make out with a young girl. I'm in. But yeah. <laughs> it's a bad idea. Like, this is a comedy. But throughout the whole thing, I felt gross. (laughs) Like, I was cringing throughout this whole movie just at the whole idea of the movie. Like, that this guy's 43 and a very unattractive guy who's having sex with an 18-year-old. You know? Like, I'm just like, no, no, this is not – this doesn't fly. Um, At least she was of age. (laughs) Well, I guess, but barely. (laughs) But – um. But this is just like, you know, it frames the story as kind of a Woody Allen type movie in a way, because it has like Kane's character and Michelle Johnson's character giving confessionals to the camera, like in a. Oh, yeah. Like, I didn't know when I went to Rio, this was going to happen. You know, like kind of like it's trying to be a Woody Allen movie. Yeah. But like with underage sex, kind of like like pedophilia almost in a way. So, yeah. Um, So. (laughs) <laughs> this is just just bad like i uh, you know she plays childish games with kane throughout the whole movie like she'll be like at dinner they'll be at breakfast and it'll be her and and kane and his and her dad played by joseph blona and she'll be like playing footsie with kane under the table or like writing i love you in the spilled salt sugar that she put on the table and like and he's just like very uncomfortable trying to hide it and i'm like it just it made me it made me cringe like this humor made me cringe like i literally was sitting there uncomfortable for all 100 minutes of this movie because it was so like i'm just like this is not humorous to me this is this is wrong it's not funny like stop trying to make this funny this is like my father the hero from 1994 it's just not funny making jokes like this i just don't like it um it doesn't help that like i said if you're an 18-year-old girl and you look at Michael Cade, there's no fucking way you're going to be like, I want to jump his bones. Like, there's no way. Yeah, Michael yeah. Caine is... Even when Michael Caine was young in, like, a movie like Get Carter or something, or The Italian Job, he wasn't, like, a, a hot-looking dude. Like, seriously. Yeah. Like, like no. He's just like, no. That, I don't see it. Um, and then, like, early on in the movie, there's a scene where they're, like, at the beach, right? And freaking. They're like, oh, look at this beach. And, you know, Michael Caine and, and his buddy are like skeezing on all the topless girls walking by. They're like, oh, yeah, topless chicks or whatever. And then both the girls come up topless. And, you know, Demi Moore's strategically placed her hair on herself so that you can't see. But Johnson's like, 
totally topless through the whole movie. Yeah. And there and and Michael Caine's like ooh la la kind of in his head. And then there's another scene when they first hook up that she has quite a lengthy nude scene as well. And I'm just like, it's just just like sure she looks okay without clothes on, but this whole movie is so skeezy that I just I'm very uncomfortable with this whole thing. You know, like it's that's just, all I remember about the movie. It's yeah, it's that that scene, right? That topless scene in the sand dunes. Like that's probably that scene. Yeah, that's probably the scene you remember. But the thing is, she's terrible in this movie, dude. Like her performance is bad. Yeah. Like she just is like she cannot deliver her lines at all. She's just so bad, and her character just acts like a like a vindictive twelve year old through most of the movie. And I'm just right. like, I, I'm not really, this is just, no, I, I just don't like this. I mean, there's a scene where, you know, Bo- Joseph Bologna's character decides he's going to go on a date and he's leaving them home alone at the, at the villa because Demi Moore's character knows what's going on and is so mad at her dad that she leaves so it's him and Johnson at this villa by themselves. They go and they make out and we see them in a hammock like, you know, ha ha ha, like that post-orgasm like happiness going on. And she looks at him and says, I remember the first time I kissed. He says to her, I remember the first time I kissed you. It was at your christening. Oh, that's a fucking line of dialogue in this movie. <laughs> so uncomfortable who put this out uh this was put out by friggin uh metro goldmeyer mgm no but recently kino oh kino put this out on blu-ray recently yeah i bought the blu-ray <laughs> i watched the dvd so i i didn't spend the money on their blu-ray but because i knew i didn't like this movie but i remember the first time i kissed you it was at your christening <laughs> I don't no. think I'm going to have as much of a problem with this as you did. No. <laughs> no. And then there's just like, there's just this, it's just so unfunny. And there's, and, and the thing is like, she says she has a crush on him and that she's liked him forever. But throughout the whole movie, she makes jokes about how old he is and how he's going to die soon. <laughs> I'm like, but you're, what, what? You're saying how much you're in love with him, but you're like, you're going to die soon. It's like, n- no, <laughs> like, it's just, I mean, I, and then when I, when she's doing this, right, I'm watching this movie and she's like, oh, you're an old man. You're going to die soon. Blah, 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 blah. I'm th- I, in my head. I'm like, wait a minute. His character's 43 in this movie. I'm fucking older than him. <laughs> I'm not hoping to die soon. <laughs> I don't feel like I'm so fucking ancient that I'm just going to keel over. (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to think about that stuff, dude. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm just like, oh, my God. So, yeah, it's it's a... Oh, that's horrifying. Like, this is a really (laughs) unfunny, inappropriate, just misguided, what the fuck were they thinking kind of movie to me. And and it always will be. I, I cringed through the whole thing and... Normally, I save my cringing for, like, uncomfortable horror movies or disturbing stuff like that. Not a fucking slapsticky, jokey, sex-type comedy. I never cringe through those. This one is the exception. Kane is gross. Johnson can't act. 
Demi Moore is pretty good, but isn't in it quite enough for me. And the fucking set design where every single house in the villa, the back of the door matches the wallpaper. It's really weird. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. Not even close to a recommend on Blame It on Rio for me. It makes me feel... It makes me feel dirty when I watch it. It's got a great cover. Have fun with that Kino uh, Blu-ray. (laughs) (laughs) Watching it for Johnson, man. Watching it for Johnson. All right. (laughs) Just don't watch it for her acting skills. (laughs) Just watch it for her. Just watch it for her. um, Her, uh, you know. (laughs) Yep, I know. Set of lungs, I guess you'd call it. <laughs> yes. All right, let's do a let's do a sequel. I'm the sequel today. Well, I guess wow. the invisible man sort of. But. All right. Penitentiary Two. Okay. 1982, directed by Jamath Manaka. This is the one I remember from the video store. This is the one that starred Mr. T. I think like it came out a month before Rocky Two or Rocky Three. This is the one that put Juicer T on the map. Have you seen this? No. Okay, you've never. I seen know this? the video box though. All those years, you never, you never picked it up. No. Because I, I always remember this is the one I always remember from the video store. Like never Penitentiary One or Three. This is the one that was always there, and maybe because Mr. T was on the cover. I've anyway. actually not seen any of the Penitentiary movies. Okay. But I did buy the first two Vinegar Syndrome discs. Okay, good. You actually bought them for me at the Traveling Roadshow. I remember that, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this one opens... Um, okay, it opens with Too Sweet. He's back at... He's he's out of he's out of jail now. He's going to stay with his sister and her new husband. Um, so the way it opens is it shows them all outside her house. And then they go into the house. Door closes... And then the opening credits play over the closed door, like the end of a sitcom. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, <laughs> this is really weird. <laughs> like I, I don't think I've ever seen that in the movie where like the, the opening credits are so lazy that they play over a closed door. Like usually they'll play over like black. <laughs> yeah. That would be a good choice, or just like some sort of like a scene, like someone walking down the street. Never yeah. up, around, like, this is, like, the, the laziest opening credits I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, over this closed door. So it was like th- it was like the end of Three's Company. Oh, uh, it's like okay. the opening credits for the wild pair where he's walking through the streets. Saying, no, yo, it wasn't. Yo. It was no, a but you know what door. I mean. Like, that's yeah, an yeah. example of what you're that's talking about. That's how it should be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so then, <laughs> then after that, still with the closed door there, we then get a Star Wars crawl. <laughs> Describing what happened in Penitentiary One. Shouldn't they have done like, that before? No, and it goes on fucking forever. It's so long, so many words, and then it's narrated on top of that. Oh no! Too sweet was. Or was it narrated? I can't remember. Anyway, it was excessive. Like is he super reading long. the scroll then? I can't remember if it was voice. When I was or in the prison, I got in. No, no, no. It wasn't. It wasn't like that. Maybe I'm just imagining it in my head because I was reading it. But anyway, it goes on and it's like a Star Wars crawl, but it goes, it's way more words and long. Like it goes on for like a minute. And I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, okay, whatever. 
um, okay, I, I remember. I just watched Penitentiary. I know what happened. Okay, so then, you know, two sweets out. They go to Venice Beach. They do roller skating. So it was like roller boogie. And then there's actually a scene where there's a dance sequence where they're they're roller boogieing. Oh, and man. Like you're, so you're and back two sweet has, two sweet has to go out in the middle. I'm like, oh, my God, this is awesome. I totally <laughs> I don't remember. I told you you'd be back in. <laughs> okay. So then... Then we learn that Half Dead from the original, the crazy guy with the missing tooth, he's out of jail and he's fucking out for Too Sweet. He wants to fuck up Too Sweet because Too Sweet wouldn't take him in the in the cell when they got in that fight in the original. So he's out to get Too Sweet. But they re- they've replaced the actor for Half Dead. It's no no longer um, uh, I can't remember the old the original actor's name Jola Jola whatever. It's now Ernie Hudson. What? Uh huh. Playing like this psychotic prison murderer. Okay. So Half Dead comes out. Okay. Tell then there's more. a scene. Tell me more. Then there's a scene after the roller do- roller boogie, where Too Sweet takes his girlfriend back to his house. His girlfriend Clarice, and he's like, "Okay, I'm gonna get with Clarice." Then there's a scene of them on the couch, and he's like really trying to get laid, and she's like kind of timid about it, and he's like really trying. And she's like, okay, I'll have sex with you. So then she's like, I just need to go and have a shower first. So she goes off to have a shower. She goes into the bathroom. Too Sweet pulls out the hide-a-bed, takes off his clothes, and is kicked back in his undies, in his tidy whities Or I think he was wearing, like, just really, like, tight bikini briefs. Kicked back, like, ready for Clarice to come out. Meanwhile, Ernie Hudson has somehow snuck into the bathroom. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how, but he's hiding in the shower. Uh-oh. So when she's in there getting ready, yeah, he rapes her and kills her without too sweet knowing what's going what? on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm just like, what is going on? And I'm like, Ernie Hudson? This is two years before Ghostbusters. Like, what the fuck? Like, too I sweet's only just know- like, Too Sweet's just lying on the bed in his freaking bikini briefs, and in his head, he's like, gonna get fucking laid, gonna get laid. his girlfriend's getting, like, raped and murdered. So that's why I didn't hear anything. (laughs) But, yeah, like, it wasn't, like, it's impossible. It's impossible. All the the blood rushing to his junk made him so he was deaf. (laughs) Possibly. Anyway, it was a pretty brutal, pretty brutal scene. And then Ernie Hudson busts out of the bathroom and gets into a fight with Too Sweet while he's in his bikini brace that goes on for quite a while they're fighting i think ernie hudson might have also been topless mm-hmm. and maybe even bottomless anyway there's this big kind of fight kind of like in the first movie except it was with it's with a different actor now i still couldn't get get over ernie hudson and i also couldn't get over how fucking built ernie hudson was like this guy was like a machine he was like so strong and like like a bodybuilder type like i i was shocked Anyway, this all happens, um, and then Two Sweet's, like, distraught, but he's like, I'm going to go fucking start boxing again. <laughs> this is what that leads him to. So he's like, okay, I'm going to go start boxing again. So he goes, and Mr. T is at the gym. Mr. T becomes his trainer. So they were, like, running around on the streets, kind of like in Rocky, um, and he's teaching teaching Two Sweet, like, you know, better moves and then very soon after that we're seldom seen from the original the old guy who trained too sweet in the original penitentiary he comes back also replaced by a different actor 
But in this one, he's not like the kind of wise kind of old man that's like, you know, espousing all this, you know, wisdom. He's like this horny old man who's trying to get laid. So that was super misguided. I'm like, oh, that's weird. Why are you doing this to this character who I really liked from the original? They just oh, had well, him whatever. Sit, they just had him sitting there, hound dog, going to get that. <laughs> it was exactly like that. And I didn't know who this actor was either, but I don't know why he replaced Floyd Chapman. Anyway, they go to a nightclub. The nightclub scene was awesome. It opens with a mime in the nightclub. I didn't know mimes went to nightclubs in the 70s, huh. but according to Penitentiary 2, they did. There's also this band called Clique playing live and it says clique behind them i've never heard of them but they had a keytar and it was a like you know definitely a good disco band so there's this good disco scene meanwhile ernie hudson has like got this woman who he's who he's living with who he's abusive towards but she's she's down with him she's almost she seems like kind of like a haggard hooker anyway he's living with her He's like getting angrier and angrier constantly in his also in his bikini briefs lying around on the bed. Um, they they like at one point in the movie they she bought brings home some potato salad and fried chicken and they eat the potato salad and it's all over their faces and then they start fucking making out <laughs> with the potato salad in their mouths. <laughs> It's fucking revolting. So I don't think I'll ever look at potato salad the same way. Um, okay, then Too Sweet eventually he gets a rematch with uh, Jesse Amos from the original movie and there's a couple of fights again with Too Sweet and, and uh, Jesse, the bull um, again played by Donovan Womack, thank god they didn't replace him um, there's a scene where Too Sweet's on the street and fucking Rudy Ray Moore starts shouting at him from a balcony for no reason um, and then at the end of the movie there's a there's a, there's a uh, the, f- the final boxing fight's happening and fucking Ernie Hudson shows up in one of those rainbow clown wigs I guess as a disguise <laughs> at the and it's at the prison all the fights with um, with Jesse Amos are at the prison so they're at the prison there's this big fight happening Ernie Hudson shows up to get revenge on Too Sweet again wearing a clown wig <laughs> and I'm like is that like his disguise because it's certainly she's certainly standing out and then he ends up... Oh, and Mr. T, by the way, is, is Too Sweet's trainer. He dresses up as a genie through most of the movie. And he's got this this um, genie, you know, the the lamp that he's like, strokes. And it smokes oh. purple smoke. Anyway, the end of this movie has <laughs> Too Sweet trying to fight Jesse with one hand. And intercut between Mr. T and Ernie Hudson fighting with Mr. T as a genie and Ernie Hudson in the clown wig, <laughs> and they're fighting in the, in the fucking dressing room. And that it's amazing. amazing. <laughs> Meanwhile, through all of this, we've got Tony Cox, who's a little person. Yeah. You might know from the Bad Santa. I know who he is. He's, yeah. just, he's, he's running around, crawling, constantly crawling under the, the ring, going over to women, asking them how much they can, they'll, they can, they'll take from him if he can have sex with them. So they'll say like $200 and then he'll run back and he'll start gambling to try and raise <laughs> enough money. Then he'll crawl back under to give them money to have sex with them. It's super <laughs> bizarre. Um, anyway, what did I think of Penitentiary 2? Um, it's obviously a bit off the rails. Um, shocking to see Ernie Hudson like this. Um, I, I wonder what he thinks of this movie. 
Um, it's definitely going more into the exploitation bonkers territory, which I don't know if it was intentional or not. Um, I like Penitentiary one better. It's more of a prison drama. This is just more crazy. Um, but I'm glad I own it. And uh, looking forward to learning more about it from some of the special features. But uh, wow. yeah, I, I didn't remember this at all. I remembered Penitentiary one a bit more, but yeah, that clown wig and Mr. T <laughs> is a genie, all that shit, pretty crazy stuff, <laughs> pretty fun. Now, so, now Vin- worth, worth the look. Vinegar Syndrome's got to put out three now, so we can complete our trilogies. Three is supposed to be just totally, completely off the rails. Yeah, so, so they need to get on it. <laughs> I don't know what the, I don't know why it's not out, but I'm I'm looking forward to seeing it. Oh my goodness! All right, well, how do I follow that up? I'm going to follow it up with uh, a TV film from the 90s, a 1994 movie called Death of a Cheerleader, based on a true story, aka A Friend to Die For, which stars Tori Spelling yeah. of all people. <laughs> um, so <laughs> this is this is this is something else. Um, it opens with Tori Spelling being attacked, and then, you know, and then she's she's attacked and stabbed. And when she's being stabbed, she can't even act well enough to convey that she's being stabbed. She's unconvincing being stabbed, if you can believe it. That's how bad of an actress Tori Spelling is. And then we flash back to ten months earlier, and we meet, and we meet, um, what the hell is the character name? Angela, who's this nerdy girl played by Kelly Martin, who is just like she's like, oh, I wish I was popular. Oh, I really do. And she has her friend, who's you know your typical funny hats, and she wants to be a cheerleader and that. And she sees all the mean girls led by Tori Spelling's character, and it's like, oh, I wish I could be their friend, basically. Her her and then. Terry O'Quinn from the Stepfathers on hand as the school principal who gives a big inspiring speech during the pep rallies and you know and eventually we have like spelling as an unconvincing mean girl who just goes around uh, insulting people and she's always wearing pearls on a sweater like Oliver Click is also wearing pearls on a sweater. I have not seen any girls in my lifetime wear pearls when they're in high school until I saw this fucking movie. So I'm like, what kind of school is this where they wear pearls all day? Um, so then, you know, eventually Angela wants to be popular. Her her family's super religious, but Spelling and her gang kind of lets her be part of it. And, you know, it becomes like this whole thing like, uh, we're mean girls. We, we're, we insult everybody. You see that goth girl over there, Monica? She's so idiotic because she's a goth so they just like insult her and call her names and everything because she's different so it's like oh look at her with her black clothing kind of thing right like oh she likes she likes typo negative well they don't say that but you know what i mean like that gothy look and then like you know and then they like set up monica to be a, a to be this like red herring at times because she looks at tori spelling's character she's like i'd like to kill her and stuff like that. Like they really? set up this red herring, right? And then meanwhile, there's scenes of them tearing around in convertible with all these like generic rock songs and pearls, of course. And, you know, and <laughs> like, you know, she's always like this Monica girl's always giving evil looks to them and threatening them and everything. Because as we learn in the first 10 minutes of this movie, Tori Spelling's character has been murdered and we need to, and it's like, this is what happened to get her killed kind of thing. Right. Mm. Um, 
since this is a true story, I will I might as well just say this isn't a spoiler because it's a true story. Is that Angela is the one who is responsible for it, obviously, because she was so driven to be popular and a cheerleader. And Tori Spelling's character was like not letting her reach her goal of being a fucking vapid bitch. But anyway, um, this is just weird because like there's a scene in this where uh, Angela's sister is driving around with a fucking sharp knife in her car. Because she's cutting cucumbers in her fucking car, which gives, which gives the movie its murder weapon later in the movie. <laughs> because I don't know, she's just like she's literally having a conversation with Angela in the car, where she's cutting cucumbers and eating them with this sharp knife. And I'm like, what, what, what's, what's, what's happening right now? Why is she cutting stuff with a cucumber? Um, and then there's, and then there's a horror movie, uh, stabbing that goes on in this where it's like slow motion and wacky angles. And it's pretty fucking rad. It's like Tori spelling being murdered in slow motion with wacky angles. And it's like a dream come true for people who don't like Tori spelling, seeing her get killed on screen. Kind of like it was great seeing Paris Hilton being killed in house of wax. You know, it's just like, uh, it's a fantasy. Um, and then, uh, Kelly Martin's acting just basically consists of, consists of lots of intense looks at the camera. Like, intense looks at the camera yeah i know i've seen her and stuff i don't remember what though uh she was in uh she's was in a bunch of teen tv shows i can't remember at the moment but it's and it's just like it's set in 1984 because that's when the real case happened but everyone in this movie is dressed like they're in the 90s like clueless they have their pearls (laughs) and their you know sweaters and everything so i'm like okay well you're obviously not being accurate with your time frame and then there's too much church stuff in this movie like it's them all going to church and repenting their sins and the parents being religious and saying god will save you and blah 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 i'm uh, they do this in tv movies all the fucking time yeah their church is gonna save everybody and you gotta pray and all that i'm like no but uh you know and then there's just this thing where it's like if yuppies weren't so mean she wouldn't do murder that comes up in like the court case like the this last half of this movie is Angela in court being defended for the murder. And the lawyer basically says, if yuppies weren't so mean, she wouldn't have had to have murdered them. So it's really <laughs> the yuppies fault that she murdered them. And I'm just like, this, Oh my God, this doesn't make any sense. But you know, this is a ridiculous based on a true story, nineties TV movie. I found it entertaining for what it is. I found out after I watched it, that this was remade in 2019. Really? And Kelly Kelly uh, Martin plays the detective in the remake. <laughs> so really? that's fucking bizarre. And also um, James Avery, who played the dad on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, shows up in this one for about two minutes as a detective to question her and threaten her with a lie detector test. But uh, if you're into like TV movies and 90s TV movies that are ridiculous but watchable. Death of a Cheerleader is pretty ridiculous and watchable. And I, I, I kind of was oh there it is 94. Yeah, yeah. I kind of enjoyed my time with this one to be honest. I I I, I, I didn't think it was gonna be. I didn't think it was gonna be like. I, I was expecting it to be terrible, but it was actually fairly watchable. And Tori Spelling's only in it for the first like half an hour, so once she kind of gets out of it the major suckage kind of leaves a little bit than more than it was. So yeah, recommend it for fans of nineties teen movies like TV movies for sure. 
Okay, so uh, the next one I checked out is uh, I went to the uh, Realms of Arrow. Uh, yeah, I really played the feel of this episode. Um, wow. So, um, yeah, I uh, decided to check out their recent release of Cruising from 1980, oh, directed I by William Friedkin. this too. Yeah, so I, I, this is a movie, man. Holy shit. So I've, have you seen this before? No. Okay, so I've seen it once. And it's it's just one of those. It's such an anomaly of a movie. Like, uh, I never think of it when I think of Freakin. I never think of it when I think of Pacino. It just feels like it's kind of buried, but it's so fucking rad. And um, I don't know why. I mean, I think because of the subject matter. Like it. I mean, but it it. I just don't know why this doesn't have more of a following. I mean, it's definitely controversial. Um, but yeah, so the movie opens. It's it's kind of like a it's like a slasher movie set in the like gay leather underground of New York City in in at the time period. And um, you know, I think the controversy is that you know it depicts gay people as like perverts is what the problem was. And I don't feel that way at all. I mean, I think this is depicting a specific subculture, and um, that existed. It's not a it's it's reality. Like this existed in New York City at the time. And probably in other cities. So, you know, um, I don't think it was, you know, portraying all gay people to be sexual perverts. It was just showing a specific area of them. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. So it opens in New York City with um, some guys, some cops on, like, Harbor Patrol finding a, like, a really disgusting severed arm in the water. Um, so then they go back to investigate it and they tack it up as kind of like a, I can't remember what the acronym was, but it's like a, a, a body without a, without a, like they, an unsolved case for lack of yeah. a better term. Cold case. Okay. Yeah. So then we're introduced to, um, pretty soon we're introduced to like this, the kind of underworld of this like leather perversion do you mean like and, a john uh, doe sorry what's that do you mean like john doe is that what you're talking about where they don't have a name for the body no they have a like have an acronym it's very specific to this movie of like body parts where they they don't know who the person oh. was it's just kind of like this random body part and they call oh. it something i just couldn't remember what it's called. okay okay sorry anyway so we're introduced to this this world after this um, we're introduced to well, very quickly we're introduced to Joe Spinell, who's a crooked cop, pervert crooked cop who like partakes in these in these nightclubs, um, and it's perfect for Joe Spinell. And this is before <laughs> Maniac. Um, we're also introduced. We we get to um, see one of the killings right away, and it's basically a guy going into a nightclub and luring someone back to back to an apartment. And then they have sex, and he kills them. And it's basically, a, like I said, it's a slasher movie. It's this guy going around New York City, luring young men back to where he is, or going out and killing them in the park, and uh, going on a killing spree. And then Al Pacino um, plays a guy named Steve Burns, who's an undercover cop, who uh, is put into this world and has to try and become part of this world to figure out the murders. So, yeah, it's pretty fucked up, man. Like, I mean, you got to remember, like, Al Pacino, this is kind of at 
peak career for this guy. And he decides to go and become an undercover cop in the gay leather underworld. It's pretty wacky that this even happened. Like, I can't... I, I was pretty much in shock through the whole movie that this even got made. Like, how the hell did freaking convince Pacino to do this? Because there's, like, a sequence of this movie where he's, like, in the club, in full leather, like dancing with another dude like biting on a fucking handkerchief and shit like it's pretty crazy that like an a-list actor would would do something like this so i gotta give patino props as well for having the balls to do this um and it gets pretty intense like you know there's a scene where he goes into this you know he's trying to figure out the scene and he goes into this like uh store where are they selling all these different hankies and powers booth is like Again, like, where, why is Powers Booth in this? I don't know. He had a cameo. But he's, like, explaining, like, the different hankies. And he's like, yeah, if you stick the yellow one in your right pocket, it means you're into yellow showers. If it's golden showers. If it's in your left pocket, it means you like receiving that. And then there another one was, like, that, you know, that you like sodomy. Another one's, like, that you like being beaten up. Like, there's all these different codes. And so it really kind of puts you into this world. Um we get introduced to Karen Allen who's playing Pacino's girlfriend who's like trying to figure out what's going on unfortunately a lot of her part was cut but she's great she's always fucking great and but I, I didn't remember she was in this at all um, we've got like a whole bunch of great actors we've got Don Scardino from Squirm he's playing a Pacino's gay neighbor who he befriends James Remar shows up for a bit as you talked about earlier as, as mm-hmm. um, Scardino's boyfriend um, we've got the killer. Um, I don't know if I want to reveal who that is, so I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, we've got, um, I know I kind of rip on Paul Sorvino one, once in a while, but he's awesome in this. It's like the, the detective that Pacino's reporting to that's trying to help him, like, help him, like, deal with what he's dealing with and getting more and more involved in this case, but also insisting that he stay undercover. Um, you know, we've got the usual, um, Friedkin people, uh, Randy Jurgensen and Sonny Grosso, who were both very heavily involved in the French Connection, uh, New York City cops. Grosso was uh, inspiration for Roy Scheider's character in French Connection. And Randy Jurgensen, I didn't know this before listening to the commentary track, because um, I've seen him in a ton of movies playing cops, but he was actually the guy the Pacino character is based on in this movie. And he has quite a prominent role in this. Um, we've got Gene Davis playing a cross-dressing, um, cross-dressing guy, like a guy who's dressed as a woman. Um, and he's, um, you know him from, uh, well, I know him from 10 to Midnight, uh, playing the crazy naked killer. Um, also was Brad Davis's brother in real life. Um, great soundtrack. We've got fucking The Germs, Rough Trade, a um, whole bunch of great, Willie DeVille, uh, a band called the Cripples that were really good. Uh, we've got the killer like going to different New York City locations, including Central Park, which apparently was a big area for this type of activity where um, gay men looking for sex, aka cruising, would hang out in Central Park in certain areas, a particular an area called the Ramble, which I had no idea about, um, was this huge area for this back in this time period. And, um, you know, the killer hanging out there and, and taking care of business there. Um, the killer has a, a little song he sings, you know, like a little nursery rhyme he sings. So definitely, definitely slasher elements, definitely giallo elements. 
um, a lot of the stuff in this was took place in real places, like the clubs that freaking used were real places that the stuff happened. It's you know I always talk about New York and seeing New York in this time period, and you know it's always talking about movies like Maniac and the Warriors. I always forget about this one. This was an epic slice of New York at that time. Um, we've got the infamous footage, like of um, you know there's one scene where like someone's like one of the guys in an, in the club is like lubing up his full full fist and forearm ready to do some action there's all the alleged missing footage that freaking shot to like get an R rating in this movie mm-hmm. um, that James Franco went on to uh, apparently reproduce in his um, in his uh, doc, quote unquote documentary about it um, another crazy fact about this movie is um the guy who apparently, because these were this is all based on a real case, the guy that apparently did the murders was a guy named Paul Bateson, who was a fucking who played a part in The Exorcist huh. before Friedkin even got involved with this movie. So wow. he started working on this movie and realized that this guy who played a radiologist in The Exorcist with a speaking role was the guy that murdered all the people that this movie is based on. Wow. It's insane. And that guy actually was a consultant on this movie, along with Randy Jurgensen. So this movie is just fucking rad. And like, not, again, I think a lot of people might be uncomfortable with the subject matter. You know, if you're homophobic, for example, you're probably going to have a hard time with this movie. But um, I think it's great. I think it's gritty. It's fucking dirty. It's Pacino in at his prime doing something that he was probably super uncomfortable with. It's got this like stellar cast. Um, it's, you know, you don't, it, it takes a while to figure out who the killer is. And even after you have, there's still a lot of questions left unanswered at the end, which in a satisfying way that had me thinking about it. Uh, yeah, man. I mean, if you like New York at that time, this is definitely worth a look. Yeah. High, high recommend for that arrow Blu-ray. It's, um, this has not been easy to find. Um, I just remember a VHS copy I used to have, um, but this is a great looking looking uh, disc with two commentary tracks. I wish it had a little bit more though. I wish they include the Franco thing, and I wish there was a, a better making of. There's there's a, like there was a lot of controversy about this movie. There was a little thing about the controversy, but I would have liked to see like a fucking full on documentary about the making of this movie so i'm a little disappointed in the extras i just wish there was a little more there but still pretty awesome to have this out on blu-ray from arrow yeah i bought bought it too i have never seen this movie but i know its reputation so yeah i I love it i fucking i think it's great man and seeing pacino in that dancing is so awesome and uh yeah it's it's just great so it is it is prime pacino prime pacino like you said because this would have been like right after injustice for all the movie made with norman jewison so oh yeah and right after serpico and godfather yeah. and godfather 2 like it was dog day afternoon and all yeah this. like all that great shit apparently richard gear was supposed to be the original actor and uh um freakin's always been bummed out that it wasn't gear and i, I do see it I, I think gear would have been great as well but uh i don't know i yeah this is this is great and very underrated i mean if i had to do another underrated episode this would be on it for sure I'll have just, to bump it up my queue. Yeah, just don't pause during the supplemental sequences. You'll know where they are. Oh, okay. All right, well, <laughs> well then. Uh, I'm going to end on a rad note, too. 
But my rad is a different type. Mine is an 80s TV movie rad, so you know it's going to be good. Uh, it's another dive into the Warner Archive collection. It's a film from 1982 called Desperate Lives. And here's where Rick Springfield comes back into the episode. He does the title song for this movie, and it was never released on any of his albums, but it's fucking amazing, and you should go listen to it on YouTube. Um, so basically, this movie is one of the early 80s just say no to drugs type movies, which means that you're in for a treat if you know what I'm talking about. If you've seen other movies of this ilk, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, there will be spoilers coming up, so but don't worry about it. It won't take away your enjoyment of this film. So starts with a cool dude in a sports car with a briefcase full of pills dealing drugs to teenagers in the middle of a graveyard. And that's where we're introduced to Helen Hunt in an early role and her skateboarding younger brother played by Doug McEwen, who we know and love from 1985's Mischief, but I have never seen in anything else except for now this and maybe on Golden Pond. But early on, his character Scott says to his sister, what are you doing? You shouldn't be doing drugs. And Helen Hunt looks at him and goes, We're, we don't experiment. We experiment. We don't use. Because he's like, you're a drug user. He's like, we experiment. We don't use. <laughs> so into the middle of this comes Diana, Scar- Diana Scarwit playing the new fresh-faced guidance counselor who comes to their high school. And she drives in and she's like, oh, everyone's, you know, cars are spinning by her. All the kids seem to be on drugs. And she looks really concerned about it. And she takes on Scott as kind of like a charity case in a way because he's like this rebellious kid who just wants to drop out. And then his sister, Sandy Helen Hunt, who's a cheerleader, is in with the wrong crowd and doing drugs. And, you know, it's got kids smoking pot at the pep rally. And, you know, and she tries to get other teachers to see them all passing joints off to the sides. And none of the teachers seem to care. So she's like confronting the teachers. And she's like, they're like, well, it just goes on in the school. There's nothing we can do about it kind of deal. And she's like, no, they're doing drugs and you have to stop them. They're like, well, you know, whatever. It just happens. There's a scene where <laughs> there's a scene where one of the uh, one of the kids uh, passes out from the drugs in the middle of the pool in the school. Like, did you have a pool in your high school when you were a kid when you were younger? No. Like, why in movies is there always a fucking full size pool in the high school? Is this Mind an there, Ameri- is a, there, there is a high school in New Westminster where there's a pool, huh. and apparently someone died in the pool, and the pool has since been covered oh, you've up. You've told me this story. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm just like. Why do they always have schools in high schools? So anyway, one girl passes out from the drugs and Scarwood has to do in-pool CPR on her, which I've never seen in my life. And it was pretty fucking amazing. So then, you know, the dealer is there and he's like 30 years old and he's he's like he has an arcade where he steals the drugs to all the kids. And he comes up to Scott and he's feeding quarters into his machine so he can try and convince Scott to be a drug dealer for him at the high school. I'm like, don't do it, Scott. Don't do it. But of course, Scott's going to do it because why not? And this is cool because the drug dealer, Ken, he's you can tell this is 80s because his apartment is full of filled with neon signs and shit because he's cool and he's got a trans am. So he's cool. But he's he's not so cool because he's giving drugs to the kids. So anyway, this is going on. Tom Atkins plays their dad. Tom fucking Atkins is their dad. 
awesome. I'm just going to fly through my notes. Uh, so next up, we have Hunt's boyfriend makes angel dust in the school science lab. Think about what? that. Really? He makes oh, like angel zaps. dust. He makes <laughs> angel dust in the school lab. And then he takes it and he gives some to Helen Hunt. Like, here, try it. But I don't know if it's any good. Just try it. The results are amazing, my friend. It is the most talked about scene from this movie. You can see it on YouTube. I don't want to spoil it for you. But let's just say it involves high dives. It is amazing. And you'll see it when you watch this movie. Then we get a scene that's a bonding outage between between Scott and the guidance counselor, Scarwood, and her boyfriend. And they go biking and they drive their bikes off the pier, and they have candy, and they have all sorts of fun. But Scotty still decides he still wants to do drugs, so fuck your bonding outing. Basic, bonding, bonding outing. So that happens. Then Scarwood decides she's going to follow around the drug dealer outside of school hours to confront him. But the thing is, while she's doing that, one of the girls that the Ken has decided not to give drugs to has decided to blow her brains out in the middle of his apartment. And the guidance counselor just seems to always show up when all this stuff has gone down. So she could be like, see, all these kids are on drugs. This is wrong. Um, so that happens. Then there's all the just say no paranoia going on in this movie. There's a scene where they're smoking angel dust while they're driving a car through a windy mountain trail that ends with the girl grabbing the steering wheel while they're driving off a cliff going, Wee! Oh my God, Not I have kidding. to see this. This happens. You've got Diane Ladd on hand as their mom, who all she does is act traumatized and stares off into the distance. We've got a memory recall freakout that Scotty has when he realizes what happened to him after the angel dust driving incident. And we've got a, an ending scene with the guidance counselor rifling through everybody's lockers, making a whole cart full of their drugs, wheeling it out in the middle of a fucking pep rally and setting it on fire while giving an inspirational speech. Wow. This, during a Christmas assembly, <laughs> this is fucking awesome, dude. This is the pinnacle of 80s Just Say No TV movies. This movie has so much wrongheaded and hilarious shit going on in it. While you feel like the makers of it were actually trying to be genuine, that it's totally worth buying. It's 10 bucks from Warner Archive. It'll be the best 10 bucks you've spent on a TV movie, guaranteed. If you if you took our advice on She's Too Young, take <laughs> our fucking advice on Desperate Lives. This is better than She's Too Young. <laughs> this is amazing. Buy it. Are you now. sure? Are you sure about it? It's better. It's better. <laughs> Not only is it a better movie, it's just as funny for all the wrong reasons. It is fucking rad, dude. Desperate Lives, 1982. Buy it from Warner Archive. You won't regret it. You won't regret it. And you can get that from Wow HD, who do uh, pretty good sales on Warner Archive stuff. Yeah, they get them. They get all the sales from me. <laughs> so Desperate Lives. If you love 80s TV movies with teenagers doing drugs and get into trouble, you'll love this one. Nice. Josh, it's me at Just Adventures! We really should get some fucking advertising. The amount of shoutouts we do. <laughs> We're not paid for any of this stuff. Yeah. Um, ever. 
Um, yeah, everybody can't even find it. Okay. All right. Okay, I gotta do this real quick. Um, this is a surprise. I've had this VHS for a while. Didn't really know about what was going on with it. So, anyway, it's the take on the Dorian Gray story called The Secret of Dorian Gray from 1970. Directed by Massimo Dallamano, the director of What Have You Done to Solange? Huh. I was shocked. So I'm like, oh my god, I've had this hidden gem all this time. Starring my favorite sleazy, arrogant dude from the 70s, Helmut Berger. Huh. Oh yeah. Wow. Like, I can't think of a better Dorian Gray than Helmut Berger in the 70s. And that's what we get here. It also opens with a bloody hand POV after a murder, which may be the first time I've seen this. I think it might have been in Twitch of the Death Nerve as well, maybe. But it opened like full on Halloween, like with like someone with bloody hands walking towards a mirror, washing their hands in a sink, all killer POV. And I don't, I don't, this might be the first time, unless you can think of another one, but I was like, holy shit, where did that come from? Okay, so I don't know if if many of you know the story of Dorian Gray. It's based on an Oscar Wilde story. Um, So Berger stars as Dorian Gray, uh, this dude who, like, gets painted by this guy named Basil, played by Richard Todd, um, because he's so beautiful. And then he ends up deciding to sell his soul to the devil for eternal youth. That's the basic the basic story, at least from this version. <laughs> but I think that is the, the Oscar Wilde story as well. And then what happens is he becomes where he has like basically no morals, and he keeps doing more and more shit that's just completely self serving. Um, but he stays young, but the picture gets more and more decrepit every time he looks at it and freaks him out. Um, so we've got a whole plethora of like. Euro trash stars in this movie. We've got Maria Rome play, or what? I'll start with Sybil, who's who's uh, Dorian's first girlfriend, played by Marie Liljedal. Uh, she was famous for the movie Inga and the seduction of Inga, as well as Jess Franco's Eugenie. Uh, she's great. Um, then we're then we get to introduce to um, a woman named Margaret Lee, who is also in a bunch of Jess Franco movies. And then we get introduced to Maria Rome, also from Just Franco's Count Dracula and a bunch of other Just Franco movies. Um, we get um, we meet Herbert Lom, who's probably best known for the Pink Panther movies. Um, also played Van Helsing in Just Franco's Dracula. And was also a Mark of the Devil. Yeah, yeah. So all these great Euro trash actors are in this movie that no one ever talks about. Um, so basically, Dorian Dorian. Um, gets the does the deal with the devil, gets the eternal youth, and then basically spends the movie just tr- fucking anything he can. So he'll like get with a woman, have sex with her, throw her aside, move on to the next, get with a woman. Then he starts like basically selling himself, starts doing older women just because he can. Then he then he like then eventually he like starts getting into dudes as well. And then by the end, and it's just it just becomes more and more of this debauchery. Um, there's some some nudity in this, not a lot. I think there's different versions. Probably the version I have is probably maybe a little more cut than a completely uncensored version. But I still enjoyed what I saw. Um, 
he um, this was produced by Harry Allen Towers, who we all know did a lot of sleazy Euro trash stuff back in the day. Um, Burger has like so much swagger and attitude, um, and no morals. Like again, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. He was perfect for this part. Um, the costumes in this are amazing. It's like like at one point he's wearing like this like zebra print jacket and just strutting down the street like the costumes are just it's like austin powers style like but reality it's it's awesome this all takes place in london in 1970 and it's it's it just captured that captures that era so well um, so yeah, man. If you're into Euro Trash, if you're into Oscar Wilde, if you're into fucking Helmet Burger like I am, um, and if you like this story, um, you probably haven't heard of this one. But um, yeah, this is a killer version of this story. Um, maybe the best out there as far as like going for it and having like an awesome lead who probably, in my mind, depicts this character more than anyone else. So yeah, good find here. And I lucked out at Value Village, found an unwrapped copy uh, oh. a few years ago, and uh, super happy I did. And I had no idea it was done by this director, who I love. So, yeah, check it out, man. It's I, it's under the, the title just Dorian Gray or The Secret of Dorian Gray. Yeah, and it's available on Prime Video, apparently. Really? As Dorian, as Dorian Gray, yeah. Oh, Prime Canada? I'm not sure about Canada. It's just when I looked it up on IMDb, it said watch on Prime Video. Oh, no, it's not available on Prime Canada, but maybe in the States. Yeah, it's available. I've already already tried to find a better print because obviously VHS is never what you want it to be. But uh, um, it's not really that easy to come by. But it might be uh, if it's available on Prime US, then US listeners knock yourself out. Well, they add so much stuff to Prime Daily, though. Yeah, and European listeners might have an easier time finding this too, but it's definitely worth a look if you're a fan of the story. Okay, perfect. Josh, it's VHS Adventures! All right, that's the end of our marathon. Our marathon. So um, if if you want to connect with us and have discussions about any of these movies or just tell us how awesome Stanley and Desperate Lives are, you can can hit us up at our Facebook group uh, and also Twitter instagram gbw podcast search for that and uh ratings and reviews wherever you listen to podcasts apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify wherever most importantly though if you like the show tell a friend it really does help we appreciate you guys listening but if you tell a friend get the word out it everything helps anything else to add josh no we're good all right until next time everybody good night